The year is 1987, and American TV networks launch a number of short-lived shows, such as Starman, The Popcorn Kid, and Probe. In a fit of midlife nostalgia and an effort to remind the world of shows they have forgotten, lone podcast pilot Chris Cooling steps into the forgotten TV studio 30 years later. to obscure TV memories of the 70s and 80s, including short-lived TV shows and made-for-TV movies, this is Forgotten TV. Welcome to Forgotten TV. I am your host, Chris Cooling. Forgotten TV is an independent, listener-supported podcast. You can support Forgotten TV through Patreon or PayPal and become a producer of the show. This episode of Forgotten TV was executive produced by Joshua Driscoll, Will Welton, and Doc Pinko. The DVD used was provided by listener Kenneth Taylor. Stay tuned at the end to find out how you can support the podcast. Thanks to all for your support of Forgotten TV. On the last Forgotten TV we considered the origins of the life and times of Grizzly Adams, a 1974 theatrical film that was adapted into a TV series for NBC, as well as an episode review of the series and 1982 TV movie that concluded the story. Join me as we dig deeper into the origins of Grizzly Adams and the studio behind it in Part 2, Sun Classic Pictures, the real Grizzly Adams, and behind the scenes of the life and times of Grizzly Adams. Charles Sellier and Sun Classic Pictures. The 1974 Grizzly Adams film was an early effort of producer Charles E. Sellier Jr. and Sun Classic Pictures. But Sellier's story begins well prior to his stint with Sun Classic. The overview of the history of Cellier and Sun Classic Pictures that I present here may not agree with all the information commonly found online about them. Quite a bit of information about Charles Cellier and his work seems to have originated with Cellier himself and may be unreliable, since he was prone to exaggeration and odd claims. The dates mentioned also may differ from those that are commonly published. But this segment is fully sourced and referenced and will present details you've almost certainly never heard. This will be published as an article at Forgotten.tv, which will cite all references. To invoke the hyperbolic words of Sun narrator Brad Crandall, 
This may be the most incredible podcast segment you'll ever hear, but the facts that will be presented are true. Cellier was born into a Roman Catholic family in 1943 and grew up in Denver, showing an interest and aptitude in photography, with his first job being a darkroom technician. In the wake of his parents' divorce at the young age of 12, he converted to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, commonly known as the Mormons. Dropping out of school in 10th grade, he and his high school girlfriend married when they were both 15 years old. Cellier became a technician and salesman for a film supply company in Denver, and by 21 was earning an incredible $65,000 salary the equivalent of over $500,000 today. In later years, he claimed to have become fascinated with the new world of information processing being made possible by computer technology during this time. At 26, he formed his own company, Creative Visual Dynamics, making industrial films, TV commercials, and travelogues. Two years later, CVD constructed a production facility in a Denver suburb that enabled them to do in-house commercial film editing and processing at one-fifth the average national cost. Cellier eventually tried his hand at making a theatrical motion picture using funds from private investors. The Brothers O'Toole, a comedy western starring John Astin and Lee Merriweather, began filming near Canyon City, Colorado, in October 1972. When they're playing cards for money, they don't like too good a winner either. It's time for action. This is the time to run. John Aston had kind words for CVD. I really can't say enough kind things about these people and their film. Somehow, I feel that CVD is going to revolutionize the movie industry, and I'm happy to have been a little part of it. With positive press and a theatrical film on the way, Cellier was able to swing a $6 million 12-picture deal with a New York investment firm. The films would be G-rated, feature-length, shot on location in Colorado, and would be produced over the next two years. In April 1973, during post-production of Brothers O'Toole, Cellier's CVD company was acquired by Salt Lake City studio American National Enterprises. Not to be confused with American International Pictures, known for teenage exploitation films and sci-fi monster movies in the 1950s. A&E were primarily known for such films as Alaskan Safari and Cougar Country, nature documentaries told in a narrative style, marketed under the banner Rainbow Adventure Films. A&E was also known for a non-traditional theatrical distribution practice we'll come back to. Prior to Cellier coming on board, A&E had also dipped its toe into pseudo-documentaries, such as Bigfoot, Man or Beast, which notably introduced the infamous Patterson-Gimlin film to audiences, and Encounter with the Unknown, narrated by Rod Serling. After merging with A&E, Cellier signed a second production deal, this time with Vidtronics, for a 12-picture combination theatrical and television syndication package. These films would continue A&E's exploration of the paranormal, with each film named after a sign of the Zodiac and focusing on a different paranormal topic. 
Meanwhile, the Brothers O'Toole opened in May in Colorado and also played in Utah, Florida, Texas, Wisconsin, and a cluster of New England states during its initial run. Characterized in puff pieces at the time as a hit film, I can find no box office information on it at all, and years later, Cellier expressed disappointment at its performance, as he told researcher Gary Edgerton in 1982. What I discovered is that there is a lot more to making a theatrical picture than a script, a location, and some actors. I just discovered that there is a lot more to the movie business than met the eye. Obviously, my first picture was a failure. A very painful failure to me because it cost a lot of money, and I raised a lot of money on it. I was interested in not having it happen again. It was such a negative experience for me. So I began to analyze the elements of what is a film, and what are you trying to achieve, and so forth. Well, that became a very complex thing. It took me many, many years. Cellier thus became quite interested in pre-release audience testing and research, something Hollywood had done in one form or another since the days of silent film. But he had plans to apply this type of research before a film even began production. One benefit now available to Cellier was A&E's research and marketing department, which began to adopt the use of computers for not only keeping daily accounting records of production expenses, but also to tabulate the extensive pre-production research he began implementing. By the beginning of 1974, Cellier claimed of A&E, We're the only ones in the business to use computers. It tells us how much we can spend, who our potential audience is, what time of year is best to release a movie, and what to expect in grosses from different theaters in an area. Cellier was excited to apply his methods of research to his next project, the docudrama Pieces of Eight, to be filmed in Florida in the summer of 1974. But he found himself snatched from A&E by rival Utah film studio Sun Classic Pictures. The history of Sun Classic is also tied to A&E. In 1971, Raylan Jensen, who had managed film distribution for A&E, broke off and joined a competing studio. Mel Hardman Productions, MHP, had been founded by Mel Hardman in 1965. Hardman had worked as the cinematographer for A&E's Cougar Country. Together with Hardman, Jensen formed Sun International, initially as a distribution company subsidiary of Mel Hardman Productions. One financier of MHP, Patrick Frawley, increased his stake in the company to the point of becoming majority shareholder, owning 80% of company stock. Frawley, a staunch anti-communist Catholic and supporter of far right-wing causes, had used his profits from developing the Papermate ballpoint pen to purchase controlling interest in everything from the Schick Razor Company to Technicolor, Yes, the very company who had pioneered a proprietary three-color process of film development and provided this service to Hollywood Studios. Patrick Frawley's acquisition of MHP was part of his burgeoning media empire. He had founded the Twin Circle Publishing Company as a subsidiary of Schick. Twin Circle published Faith and Family, a Catholic magazine that promoted marriage and motherhood, as well as two Catholic newspapers, 
and distributed a five-minute daily radio program and weekly half-hour television show, all of these promoting traditionalist Catholic views. He also acquired the Classics Illustrated brand, known for its comic book adaptations of literary classics. After becoming majority shareholder, Frawley soon began to insert his political and personal views into MHP Films in a ham-fisted manner, prompting the resignation of founder Mel Hardman. With Hardman gone, Frawley dropped his name from the company entirely, adopting the subsidiary name of Sun International. Later, this was changed again to Sun Classic Pictures, initially spelled with one N and later with two, interestingly enough, to differentiate themselves from a producer of pornography. Frawley's conservative worldview would set the tone for the early productions of Sun Classic, several of which would depict a strong white male character, rejecting modern society and returning to the pure values of nature, surviving alone in the North American wilderness against all odds. Sun was also known for something else they borrowed from A&E. Remember that non-traditional theatrical distribution method I mentioned? This was called four-walling, a film distribution strategy where a studio would rent individual theaters, usually in smaller town markets, for a limited exhibition, typically a week at most, and keep virtually all the revenue from ticket sales, while the theater kept the concession revenue, the real profit center for movie theaters. If a theater was unavailable, any four walls would do, so occasionally the films would be shown in high school auditoriums churches, or casinos. In traditional wide-release theatrical distribution, a movie booking agent would be used to get a film exhibited and shipped to as many theaters in major markets as possible, with the theaters and agents' percentages, as well as film print replication, shipping, and national marketing, all eating into the studio's profits. A four-walled film release would get by with far fewer film prints that traveled regionally over many months, and the studio would saturate each local market with TV and print advertising along the way. This was a favored distribution method used by exploitation film promoter H. Kroger Babb in the 1940s and 50s, and notably used by actor Tom Laughlin when he bought his film Billy Jack from Warner Brothers after a lackluster standard release and four-walled it to the tune of a $32 million gross. Several of the former employees of A&E, now at Sun, were the very ones who helped develop A&E's four-walling strategies. Four-walling helped small studios like A&E and Sun to target the audience in areas that they felt would be most responsive to the types of films they offered, an audience demographic that had largely stopped going to theaters. The beginning of the 1970s had seen a slump in the movie business, and at least some of that downturn had been a result of a portion of the movie-going public avoiding what they perceived as an increase in profane, sexual, violent, and occult content in mainstream Hollywood films. The recent institution of the movie rating system was also no guarantee that these largely religious audiences wouldn't still find objectionable material even in films given a mild rating. In addition to their films being rated G, Sun Classic's reassuring motto was wholesome family entertainment always. And their first effort set the archetype for the wilderness genre of film they would first find success with. 
1971's Toklat. By summer, Toklat decided he had had just about enough. He was determined that nobody was going to get the best of him ever again. Thinking he was alone, he set up a training camp and grabbed any sparring partner he could find. He attacked another poor sap to prove that he was a grizzly critter, strong, savage, and ferocious. Squirrel wasn't too impressed, but she wouldn't expose him. <laughs> I guess she figured cubs will be cubs. Starring and narrated by longtime character actor Leon Ames, who recounts the entertaining story of a grizzly bear cub growing up first in the wild, then after being rescued by a nameless, aging mountain sheep herder firmly aware that man was the intruder of Toklat's domain. Years later, when a grizzly preys on the sheep of the old man's brother who is injured in the process, the old man is reluctantly charged with hunting down the 1,000-pound bear, which the narrative reveals to be none other than Toklat. Toklat was filmed in Utah's Uinta Mountains, and the film's title was taken from an Inuit word, meaning a valley formed by a glacier. During the film's promotion, however, the producers said the title was derived from an indigenous word meaning ferocious. Animal handler and outdoorsman Dick Robinson contributed to the cinematography and acted in the film. Robinson, who had evolved his parking lot animal show into a career providing animals for various productions, including TV's Wild Kingdom, Lassie, and the Wild Wild West, was co-owner of the nascent studio's Springdale, Utah, menagerie of 125 animals, including the real star of Toklat, Willie the Grizzly Bear. The film contained footage shot over five years as Willie grew into an adult. Released during the very early days of Sun, when it was still using the Mel Hardman name, it was on this film that Patrick Frawley, a recovered alcoholic, attempted to insert an anti-alcohol message Hardman insisted didn't belong in the film. Frawley also objected to a song about ecology that Hardman used in the film calling it Communist Dogma. Toklat grossed $3.9 million in its first year of release. It was never released on any form of home video, but did enjoy some TV airings on local stations throughout the 1980s, and was shown on the Disney Channel in 1990, then completely disappeared. Until someone produces a film print or uploads a recording, Toklat is apparently a lost film. The following year's Trap on Cougar Mountain featured young Eric Larson, son of actress Vera Miles and writer-director Keith Larson. Twelve-year-old Eric was the ultimate 70s free-range kid, roaming the countryside of Virgin, Utah, alone on his three-wheeler, saving wildlife from traps and interfering with hunters with little regard for his own safety. Also released in late 1972, Brother of the Wind, with Dick Robinson now in the lead role, depicted a modern-day mountain man in the Canadian Rockies, saving four wolf cubs after their mother dies. Filmed in southern Alberta, Brother notably featured long, long stretches of wildlife shots interspersed with scenes relating the narrative. 
All of these were low-budget productions, shot entirely on location with largely non-union crews and actors, many of which had little prior film experience, and notably were filmed on 16mm without location sound, having soundtracks post-produced in their entirety. However, Sun's first release in 1974 wasn't a wilderness film, but belonged to an additional genre they would become known for. Chariots of the Gods, the international bestseller by Eric Von Dänigen that shattered conventional theories about history and archaeology. Now Sun International brings it to the screen in a startling new film. Chariots of the Gods explores Von Dänigen's controversial and explosive theory that beings from other galaxies visited Earth in ancient times. Did a genius from another world design the pyramids? Is there evidence of a prehistoric airfield in the Andes? And what about the giant stone faces that brood over Easter Island? All over the Earth, the evidence is there. For an intriguing, fascinating, mind-opening experience, see Chariots of the Gods, rated G. Yes, it was Chariots of the Gods, the highly questionable 1970 German documentary based on the 1968 Eric Von Daniken book that introduced ancient alien theory to the world. Chariots had already been shown on U.S. television in January 1973, repackaged as In Search of Ancient Astronauts and narrated by Rod Serling. But this didn't stop Sun from picking up U.S. theatrical distribution rights and running it using A&E's tried-and-true four-walling technique collecting a cool $12.5 million. Sun also snatched up the distribution rights for the 1971 Richard Weiner film, The Devil's Triangle, narrated by Vincent Price, and often ran it with chariots as a double feature. This is when Charles Selyer, along with several others, left A&E and moved from Denver to Salt Lake City to join Sun Classic in June 1974. Bringing with him his newfound obsession with audience concept testing, Cellier immediately went to work, having computers installed at Sun, four years before Jimmy Carter would install any at the White House, and analyzed which moviegoers were buying tickets for Chariots of the Gods. When their data showed uneducated adult males were the most interested, they focused television advertising on programs that met that demographic such as The Six Million Dollar Man. Also finding a great deal of public fascination in a variety of unexplained phenomena, this would heavily influence a shift in the type of films they would be known for releasing. But those would have to wait, as Cellier's first film project for Sun would be none other than The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams. In the summer of 1973, on the heels of the success of Brother of the Wind, Dick Robinson had signed with Sun to create two Grizzly Adams films, featuring himself in the title role. Robinson, who was making films for both A&E and Sun, had worked with Cellier making the Coyote film Birth of a Legend, when Cellier was still at A&E. The details of this I'll cover in an upcoming segment but suffice to say that Sun executives were not pleased with what had been filmed, and Cellier completely took over the Grizzly Adams production, scrapping Robinson's film and producing an entirely new version featuring an animal handler that had been discovered by Patrick Frawley on another film being shot in Alberta. Legend tells that in the far north, about every 100 years, 
winter is so severe in the high mountains that no living thing can survive. During this coldest of winters, the wildest animals, among them the Siberian tiger, come down from the mountains in search of food and to escape the bitter cold. These huge predators follow the caribou herds and make their way southward in two directions, to Manchuria and India and toward Alaska. These extreme winters begin, according to the legend, when the north wind blows. When the North Wind Blows, a continuation of Sun's wilderness formula, broke in mid-November in smaller Pennsylvania and Ohio markets. For this film, Sun enlisted Stuart Raffle, who had supervised the wild animal sequences in Disney's Lieutenant Robin Crusoe, USN, Dr. Doolittle, and the Ron Ely Tarzan series. Also appearing in North Wind was an unknown actor and animal trainer, that it appeared in a handful of biker films by the name of Dan Haggerty, who would be enlisted as Sun's new Grizzly Adams. While Sun would release a couple more wilderness films, The Adventures of Frontier Fremont in 1975, again with Haggerty, and Guardian of the Wilderness in late 1976, starring Denver Pyle, the remaining majority of their 1970s film lineup would represent a shift to what Variety would call speculation films. Taking a cue from the enormous success of Eric Von Daniken's book, Charles Sellier shrewdly managed to retain the rights to adapt each screenplay he produced into a book. Thus, a tie-in paperback from Bantam Books was released in conjunction with most films Sun produced or distributed, starting with Grizzly Adams going forward. While these books would carry Sellier's name as author and often give the impression that the movie was based on the book, proclaiming now a major motion picture, they were in fact ghost-written adaptations of screenplays already in production. Sun Classic next picked up the theatrical distribution for 1975's The Outer Space Connection. They came to Earth 40,000 years ago, and even now, they continue to observe us. The Outer Space Connection revealed startling new proof that Earth is being visited by travelers from another world. The Outer Space Connection, an astonishing motion picture experience. Based on the controversial bestseller that boldly unlocks the secret of our universe. Experience The Outer Space Connection from Sun International. Rated G. Hosted by Rod Serling and written and produced by Alan Landsberg, who had created In Search of Ancient Astronauts and In Search of Ancient Mysteries for television in the prior two years. Two years later, Landsberg continued exploring mysterious phenomena on television with the popular syndicated series In Search Of. With Rod Serling passing away before production started, the series was hosted by Leonard Nimoy. Also in 1975, Sun finally produced their own pseudo-documentary on one of the topics A&E had already visited. Bigfoot, the Mysterious Monster, featured Peter Graves examining the alleged sightings, photos, and footprints left by America's popular cryptid, as well as others such as the Loch Ness Monster and the Yeti. The Patterson-Gimlin footage that had debuted in A&E's Bigfoot Man or Beast was used, over which they were promptly sued by A&E, alleging film piracy 
based on their claim that the footage had been exclusively licensed to them. The film was quickly retitled The Mysterious Monsters in the wake of the suit, likely to avoid confusion with A&E's film. The lawsuit was settled, but ironically A&E were themselves being sued by Robert Gimlin, who had been left out of negotiations when Roger Patterson licensed the footage to A&E. It didn't end there. The legal history of the Patterson-Gimlin film is incredibly complex and went on for another seven years. Meanwhile, the mysterious monsters scared up $11 million of ticket sales. Then there was The Amazing World of Psychic Phenomena in June 1976. There are forces in our world that we have only begun to understand. Some people claim they have seen ghosts. Others say they have recorded the voices of the dead. There are those who report their homes are possessed by mysterious powers. You will see actual footage, never before seen by the public, which shows some of the most startling displays of psychic power ever filmed. Psychic experiences have been documented throughout the ages and continue to be recorded today. Do you have extrasensory perception? You will be able to decide for yourself as we boldly explore whether or not man's mind really does have control over matter. Don't miss The Amazing World of Psychic Phenomena from Sun Classic Pictures. But probably no film epitomized this era of Sun Classic Pictures more than their next release. When their research repeatedly showed the topic of Noah's Ark to be a high-testing film concept, Spurred by accounts in popular media, such as the childhood recollections of Armenian-American Georgi Hagopian, as well as several recent reports from people that claimed to have found the ancient vessel, Sun began to work on a film that would prove as much a moneymaker for the studio as Grizzly Adams. 1976's In Search of Noah's Ark In true Sun fashion, host Brad Crandall mixed fact and fiction to present an intended narrative that Noah's Ark, from the biblical account of Genesis, had indeed been found on the slopes of Mount Ararat in what is now eastern Turkey. However, Sun was again treading on ground already covered by competitor A&E, who had released the admittedly less engaging The Ark of Noah the prior year, but undoubtedly had primed audience interest in this topic. Unlike A&E's drier version, Sun's $360,000 production filmed dramatic recreations of the biblical account, using their menagerie of animals, as well as some 40 to 50 actors. Sun's search would find about $26 million in box office revenue. To put that in perspective, this places it ahead of hit films Network, Logan's Run, and Carrie, all from that year. A footnote here. The film's topic was revisited years later in the Cellier-produced 1993 CBS TV special, The Incredible Discovery of Noah's Ark, hosted by Darren McGavin. During the production of this TV special, Cellier's production company found itself the victim of what we would now call a troll. Presented uncontested in the special were the claims of George Jamal, who showed what he called sacred wood from the Ark, the supposed product of a tragic expedition said to have claimed the life of his friend. 
Just over four months later, Jamal was revealed to be an out-of-work Israeli actor from Long Beach who had never been to Turkey. And the sacred wood were actually pieces of railroad tracks he had collected near his California home that he baked in his oven with barbecue and teriyaki sauce. The story behind this hoax is equally absurd, and it turned out it was all part of a years-old practical joke that stemmed from a creation-evolution debate Jamal had heard on KABC radio in 1985. Jamal fabricated the account of his expedition to Turkey's Mount Ararat and sent it to the Institute for Creation Research, who had participated in the debate. In his story, the outrageous Jamal used names he felt were obviously preposterous, such as Mr. Asholian, Vladimir Sobitsky, and Alice Bulls Hittian. You might need to write that last one out to catch the joke. Ironically, Jamal also watched 1976's In Search of Noah's Ark in preparing his false account. Years passed, and the ICR had forwarded Jamal's story to Selye. Coached by Gerald LaRue, a USC professor of religion and archaeology, who felt he had been misrepresented on previous Sun productions, Jamal was interviewed for 1993's Incredible Discovery special. When LaRue revealed the hoax, he was rightly critical of the failure of the producers to vet evidence presented on their programs. Even after being revealed, Charles Sellier was incredulous that Sun had been hoaxed at all, seemingly not comprehending that Jamal's original eight-year-old story had been fabricated. The whole account was thoroughly investigated in a 1993 issue of Skeptic magazine, which also pointed out other inaccuracies, omissions, and misrepresentations contained in the 1993 special. This resulted in CBS heavily vetting an upcoming, already-produced special, Mysteries of the Ancient World, but scrapping any future projects with Charles Sellier. Back in 1977, Sun's researchers were working on their next project. When concept testing two years earlier had revealed strong interest in political conspiracies, among the film concepts Sun tested was one that would explore if there had been a conspiracy to assassinate Abraham Lincoln. Sun had researcher David Balsiger put their investigators to work, spending some $200,000 in research, assembling their own alternate history surrounding the Lincoln presidential assassination, based in part on a supposed transcript of the 18 pages said to be missing from the diary of John Wilkes Booth. Ladies and gentlemen, everyone sitting in this audience has been exposed to the traditional story of the assassination of President Lincoln. For over a century, history books have taught us that the murder was committed by a crazed actor named John Wilkes Booth. The history books go on to say a few southern rebels helped him and no one else. The motion picture you are about to see will shock you because the true story of President Lincoln's assassination cannot be found in any history book. It is a story of corruption, treachery, and cover-up. It is a story every American has the right to know. The product was The Lincoln Conspiracy, produced for a total of $1.2 million, a monumental budget for Sun. So sure were they of their audience research, Sun dropped their typical gradual four-wall distribution in favor of a wider release, demanding upfront payments from theaters, 
and spending a massive $5 million on marketing, including an arrangement with 7-Eleven convenience stores to display the tie-in paperback, as well as prolific television advertising for its October 1977 release. The Lincoln Conspiracy was Sun's first clear box office falter, earning only $5.6 million, and was quickly sold to TV partner NBC to air on broadcast television only seven months after theatrical release. Sun actually produced several specials for NBC, such as 1977's Last of the Mohicans and their version of The Time Machine in 1978, both presented under the Classics Illustrated brand. In tonight's Classics Illustrated presentation, a young scientist hurdles the barrier of time and finds himself locked in a struggle to prevent the destruction of Earth. It's a tale of one man's love and devotion in the world of the future, an exciting new version of H.G. Wells' masterpiece, The Time Machine. Greatest Heroes of the Bible was a limited series NBC aired during National Bible Week in November 1978 as 10 episodes airing across five nights. The series would return in late spring with seven more one-hour installments. Classic TV fans that seek out the episodes will be delighted to see Mark Leonard, Frank Gorshin, Robert Culp, Gene Barry, David Burney, Victoria Principal, Barry Williams, Eve Plum, Don Most, and William Daniels all make appearances. Mike M. attached this comment at the bottom of a Diabolique article on Sun Classic, which gives us an idea of what it was like on this Sun production. I worked on a Sun Classic production, Greatest Heroes of the Bible, in Utah and Arizona in the late 1970s. Was an extra in several segments, made $25 a day. I didn't really know it at the time but it was the cheapest production you could imagine, and us extras were put into danger on a regular basis. Things that might have gotten a production shut down now were shrugged off because it was the 70s and people needed the money. Half the extras were Navajos and maybe a quarter were rural Mormons. Interesting times. Two of their late 70s entries are still remembered by some as nightmare-inducing. 1978's Beyond and Back was a Sun Classic look at near-death experiences, then a recently coined term. Called a death-sploitation flick by several cult film guides, based partly on evangelist Ralph Wilkerson's 1977 book and authoritatively narrated by Sun regular Brad Crandall, Beyond reenacted NDE accounts, one of which depicted a suicidal woman's frightening descent into hell. The film was incredibly still given a G rating. The following year's Beyond Death's Door was a scripted narrative rated PG, the first Sun film to receive this rating. Of course, all the NDEs related were consistent with the popular Christian narrative of the afterlife. Sun's two 1979 offerings were their by now typical mix of the paranormal and the religious. January's The Bermuda Triangle rehashed Charles Berlitz's highly specious 1974 book, as well as prior film and TV efforts to the tune of $10.8 million. 
the wedge of ocean that has terrified man for centuries? How is it related to the mysterious forces of nature that sweep through it? Why do some who fly over it report a strange green haze and bizarre magnetic effects while others simply vanish? And how can these forces affect you? Learn the incredible answers in a new motion picture, The Bermuda Triangle, rated G. Sun's August release was In Search of Historic Jesus. It has survived a devastating flood and a great fire. It's called the Sacred Shroud of Turin and is claimed to be the burial cloth of Jesus. It's miraculously imprinted with the image of a man, believed to be that of Jesus Christ. Modern scientists have recently examined the sacred shroud and have discovered startling new proof about the man called the Son of God. You'll find amazing answers in this fascinating new motion picture based on the best-selling book, In Search of Historic Jesus. Heavily promoting the authenticity of the religious relic known as the Shroud of Turin, the film recycled scenes produced for Greatest Heroes of the Bible and presented a narrative about Jesus Christ consistent with Mormon teachings. Both the film as well as Sun's advertising and distribution methods were absolutely excoriated by Siskel and Ebert in sneak previews. Still, the film earned $10.6 million at the box office. They didn't know it at the time, but this film would effectively mark the end of Sun Classic Pictures as it was known. Yes, there were more films. Sun's Hangar 18, released in June 1980, was perhaps the most mainstream of their non-wilderness films. On October 24, 1979, a huge metallic disc crashed in the Arizona desert. Military authorities moved what they found to Hangar 18 at a remote Air Force base. Now an incredible new motion picture reveals startling proof that the government has a flying saucer in its possession and the dead bodies of alien pilots. Why have the facts been kept hidden from the American public? Learn the terrifying truth. See Hangar 18, rated PG. Starts Friday at a theater near you. Don't miss Hangar 18. Also rated PG and released alongside the typical tie-in novelization by Bantam, the film was not a documentary, but purported to tell the story of a government cover-up regarding a UFO observed by the space shuttle crew that subsequently crash-landed in the Arizona desert and was taken to an Air Force base in Texas and tucked away in Hangar 18. True to form, what was real and what was fiction was intentionally blurred, and the trailers gave the impression that the film was based on real events, even though the film predated the first manned flight of the space shuttle. Starring recognizable actors Gary Collins, Darren McGavin, Robert Vaughn, and several others, the film took decades of UFO lore and spoiler alert, combined it with Chariots of the Gods-style ancient alien theory. Straying out of Utah for this one, filming at the defunct Webb Air Force Base in Big Spring, Texas, ran over schedule and cost more to produce than Sun initially planned. Wrapping the first week of April, the film was playing in theaters only 12 weeks later. The film was panned by Siskel and Ebert with Two Votes No!, and was Sun's second commercial failure. Sun's biggest film yet, Hangar 18, was made on a reported budget of between $5 and $11 million, depending on the source you read, but grossed short of $6 million and was quickly sold to pay TV channels, where it debuted less than a year after theatrical release.
Relying on their typical practice of TV ad saturation, they didn't even seem to release a press kit with artwork for this film, with all newspaper theater listings simply listing the film in plain text. And the one-sheet movie poster was a very lackluster design. Even though Sun had commissioned accomplished artist Tom Chantrell to do full movie art for the print materials, they only used the single element of three of the actors peering into what is perceived to be the door of the UFO. Surrounded by a sea of black and large credits emphasizing the lead actors. Chantrell's full artwork was seen on the UK quad sheets and, years later, on DVD covers. Perhaps Sun bit off more than they could chew with Hangar 18, or its UFO conspiracy theme didn't appeal as much to their typical audience. Or it was simply steamrollered by box office competitors The Empire Strikes Back, Airplane, and Urban Cowboy, as well as near-universal bad reviews. But by now, the studio was in serious decline due to several factors. Yes, there was the financial failure of Hangar 18, but for years, advertising costs had started to eat into their business model, which depended heavily on TV ad saturation. Sun Executive Vice President Claire Farley had complained as early as 1977 that TV advertising rates had gone up 26%. There was also a little publicized legal battle with Dick Robinson over the Grizzly Adams brand that had dragged on for some six years, which is its own story. The same summer Hangar 18 was released, Sun and an interest in future releases of their film library were acquired by multimedia conglomerate Taft Broadcasting in a $5 million deal. Taft proceeded to dust off properties from Sun's library. 1981's Earthbound with Burl Ives and WizKids Todd Porter in an early role featured an old man and his grandson hiding an extraterrestrial family with a green monkey from the government. Filmed two years earlier, Earthbound had been a TV movie pilot delivered to NBC in the fall of 1979 with the hope of a 13-episode mid-season order. Shelved when rejected by the network, It was later pulled out of the Sun catalog and released theatrically to generate revenue. Surprisingly, Earthbound included a mild profanity, as well as the name of Jesus Christ used as an expletive, both seemingly inserted in post to obtain a PG rating for the theatrical release. As we covered in the last episode, in September 1981, Taft resurrected the Grizzly Adams franchise selling NBC on the TV special The Capture of Grizzly Adams, which aired the following February. The TV movie performed moderately well in the weekly ratings, and there were plans for a two-hour Christmas special for 1982. But this never materialized. However, they did patch together several Grizzly Adams episodes into a 93-minute VHS release called Legend of the Wild which was released theatrically in overseas markets. The 1981 R-rated horror film The Boogans, produced by Cellier under Taft Sun, not to mention the racy and even then highly problematic Private Lessons, in which an adult European housemaid seduces a 15-year-old boy 
distributed under recently formed subsidiary Jensen Farley Pictures after no mainstream Hollywood studio would touch it, both represented a complete departure from their previous G-rated, wholesome studio identity. The fact that during the filming of the Boogans, a propane-fueled pyrotechnic device ignited a fire which burned down the building they were filming in perhaps adds additional symbolism here. The Sun Classic Pictures that once promised wholesome family entertainment always was no more. I'll conclude this segment with Cellier's 1981 film, The President Must Die. In researching this documentary that purported to expose a cover-up of the JFK assassination, Sun performed their usual audience concept testing. When it came to ticket buyers, the film fell far short of expectations when played in test markets in Arizona and Virginia. The film was then completely shelved by Taft Sun, never to be seen again. However, in discussing this film, screenwriter Brian Russell was unusually frank regarding Sun's research and writing process in a 1980 interview with journalist Patricia Morrisrow. After feeding our data into the computer, we went with the conspiracy theory, the premise that was closest to what the majority believed. When asked what if their data had shown the majority of the public believed the official report that Lee Harvey Oswald had acted alone and not part of a conspiracy, we would have gone with that angle instead. We're interested in drama, not politics. Yes, Russell admitted Sun allowed their audience research to guide the narrative of films they presented to the public as documentaries. Much the same was also confirmed by director James Conway, speaking of his film The Lincoln Conspiracy in a 2018 interview for Diabolique magazine. In my mind, we were making a docudrama. I never minded the criticism because we weren't trying to make a pure documentary story there was no authentication process. This harks back to Sun lead researcher David Balsiger's simple response to criticism of their failure to vet information presented as fact in the 1993 Noah's Ark TV special. This is an entertainment show. How, though, did Sun Classic Pictures come to produce a film about Grizzly Adams? In fact, who was this Grizzly Adams guy anyway? When we come back, we'll find out. Moses fights treacherous forces to lead his people from slavery. In the Ten Commandments, a new drama on greatest heroes of the Bible, Tuesday. The Real Grizzly Adams The man that came to be known as Grizzly Adams was born John Boyden Adams in October of 1812 in Medway, Massachusetts, into the same family of Adamses that produced President John Adams and Revolutionary War Patriot Samuel Adams. Even so, one of his biographers called Medway, southwest of Boston, a dull New England town. The second eldest of seven siblings, he preferred the name James growing up. At age 14, his father, Eleazar, took him to apprentice with the local bootmaker. But by age 21, 
he had given up the dull shoemaker life of Medway and begun working as a trapper in northern New England forests for a company of showmen in the wildest parts of Maine, Vermont, and New Hampshire. By his own account, he captured panthers, wolves, wildcats, foxes, and other animals for traveling exhibition. However, a serious injury suffered at the jaws of a Bengal tiger from one of these traveling menageries ended his trapping career for the time being. During the long recovery from this mauling, he did have full use of his arms and hands, so he returned to shoemaking for the next 15 years. During this time, he also married and settled down in Brookfield, Massachusetts, having three children. In 1849, he got the itch to do some Yankee trading, and invested his life savings of at least $6,000 in a business venture. With thousands of men heading west for the California gold rush, he figured many of them would buy footwear, boots in particular, for their journey and for working their claims. Converting his funds into inventory, he had it all shipped to St. Louis, Missouri, which had become a boomtown as the last major city where travelers could buy supplies before heading further west. But when the moored steamboat White Cloud caught fire, it spread to other ships and to the docks, eventually burning up 23 steamboats and 430 buildings in the vicinity of the waterfront. Adams' inventory was a total loss. Just short of three weeks later, Adams' father hung himself back in Charlton, Massachusetts. With life in the East now no longer appealing, he left behind his wife and three young children to join the gold rush to California. It was not a pleasant journey. Falling sick twice along the way, first in Chihuahua City, then in Los Angeles, he was supposedly left behind to die by his traveling companions both times. Finally arriving in California's mountain gold country near Stockton, he got involved in gold mining, trading wild game, ranching, and even running a general store. He began using the name of his younger brother, James Capon Adams, as well as William Adams. No one knows why he began using these aliases, but James Capon Adams stuck, and it's likely the name he is best known by today. Things went well in California, until they didn't. A rainstorm flooded his mine near Sonora. Rustlers stole all his cattle in a single night. There were disputes over his prospecting claims. Adams found himself in court, mortgaging his properties to pay legal fees. He had had enough of society and the pursuit of wealth. Like something right out of a 1970s wilderness movie, he grew out his hair and beard, and with his Colt pistol, two rifles, various bowie knives, and some supplies, disappeared on a wagon drawn by two oxen for some two and a half years into what is now the Stanislaus National Forest. Disgusted with the world and dissatisfied with myself, I abandoned all my schemes for the accumulation of wealth, turned my back upon the society of my fellows, and took the road toward the wildest and most unfrequented parts of the Sierra Nevada, resolved thenceforth 
to make the wilderness my home, and wild beasts my companions. John Adams, 1852 He built a cabin just west of Sugar Pine Creek in the vicinity of modern-day Longbarn, California, about 35 miles northwest of the Yosemite Valley, where he lived in peace with nearby indigenous peoples. Adams' view of the people called Indians was somewhat unusual for the time. While many California mountain men and gold miners had no issue taking advantage of the bounties often placed on the heads or scalps of these tribal peoples, Adams felt differently, even though he called them a rude race of beings, and that some tribes were idle, shiftless, and filthy he also expressed indignation to hear of the cruelties sometimes practiced toward them. He procured the services of two indigenous young men and named them Tuolumne and Stanislaus, after two regional rivers, who would accompany him on expeditions and hunts. Hunting, fishing, and trapping, he traded with the Miwok tribe, who provided him a deerskin suit, hat, and moccasins, that became his trademark outfit, as he would thereafter never wear anything else. It was here where he earned the moniker he would forever be known by, but the character of the real Grizzly Adams was quite different from the soft-spoken, sanitized Dan Haggerty version who spent time whispering to deer and raccoons. The compilation of articles later written by historian Theodore Hittel that were based on his daily interviews with Adams revealed numerous bloody and extremely visceral encounters with elk, buffalo, wolves, panthers, and yes, bears. I won't be unnecessarily graphic, but the following highlights will give you a flavor of the escapades of the real Grizzly Adams. If you're sensitive to hearing about hunting and animal deaths, you may wish to skip the next few minutes. During his first year in the wild, on an expedition to what is now western Montana, he caught a female grizzly cub about a year old. Naming her Lady Washington, he was able to tame her and taught her to follow him around, pull a sled, eat with him, and even allowed him to ride on her back. Another time near his camp, he discovered a mountainside bear den, where he found a mother and two year old cubs. Using two rifles, Adams ambushed the mother grizzly, shooting her in the chest and head. With some difficulty, Adams, Tuolumne, and Stanislaus corralled the two bear cubs. Adams became renowned for his hunting and animal captures and was sought out as a hunting and expedition guide. In 1854, while leading a month-long hunt for Mr. Solon, a man from Sonora, he found another bear den near the headwaters of the Mariposa River. Staking out the cave for days, he finally camouflaged himself, shooting the mother bear first with his rifle, then stabbing her in the heart, and finally emptying his six-shot revolver into her. In the cave, he found a pair of cubs, but these were babies, perhaps a week old with eyes still closed shut. Mr. Solon took one of the cubs, naming it General Jackson, 
and Adams named the other Ben Franklin. Initial attempts to feed them a milk substitute was unsatisfactory. However, Adams' greyhound had recently given birth to a litter of pups. Adams killed all but one of them to enable the greyhound to nurse the bear cubs. The living greyhound pup was named Rambler and grew up with Ben as siblings. Ben Franklin grew to be called that most excellent of all beasts. That winter, Adams constructed the largest cage trap he had ever attempted. The resulting capture was an adult, 1,500-pound male grizzly, which he named Samson, one of the largest grizzly bears ever captured alive. During another expedition, Lady Washington had an encounter with a Rocky Mountain grizzly, resulting in a male cub. Adams named the cub General Fremont. In the spring of 1855, leading another hunting trip in the Sierra Mountains, he suddenly came upon a grizzly mother and two cubs, which all attacked Adams and his hunting partner. Using both his rifle and knife, Adams managed to kill the three bears. Some days later, on a return trip to his Sierra cabin, he was startled by yet another grizzly mother, who attacked him faster than he could raise his rifle, and he was thrown to the ground. Ben and Rambler attacked the mother grizzly and occupied her long enough for Adams to recover his rifle and fire while she was biting into Ben. Ben ended her life with his bowie knife. Adams' scalp had been torn in the battle, and he had bite wounds in his neck. Limping back to camp, he tended to Ben's wounds for a week, which left permanent scars. Adam's head injury was more serious than he realized at the time. His skull was damaged and never fully healed. This injury, compounded by a later strychnine poisoning from eating tainted meat, may have led to an infection which made him seriously ill with severe headaches and delirium, which was treated by an old Spaniard who happened upon his camp. Returning from an expedition along the El Camino Real, a route used by Spanish missionaries, people along the way observing a mountain man traveling with two bears and a dog behind his mule team was the source of much curiosity, which led to Adams putting on first impromptu, then more structured shows of his bears and other animals. By wintertime of 1855, Adams emerged from his mountain wilderness and exhibited his bears and animal menagerie in several towns, including San Francisco. It was here Adams opened his modest basement Mountaineer Museum, charging 25 cents a ticket to see a caged Samson, a chained Ben and Lady Washington, alongside seven other bears, cougars, and smaller animals. At this point, he also befriended journalist Theodore Hittel, who would write down Adam's stories and promote the museum in newspaper articles. This led to Adam's bears being exhibited in the Pioneer Circus and at McGuire's opulent New Opera House, and he would put on shows in San Francisco for three years, often billing himself as Yankee Adams. But in January of 1858, Ben Franklin 
that most excellent of all beasts, fell ill and died. His obituary ran in the newspapers, including one titled, Death of a Distinguished Californian. After being depressed for many months, at the beginning of 1860, Adams took his animals aboard the clipper ship Golden Fleece bound for New York, a three-and-a-half-month journey around Cape Horn. Arriving in New York, he was quite unwell and consulted doctors to see if his head injury could be repaired. At some point, either during the ocean voyage or earlier at the museum, an altercation with General Fremont had reopened his head wound, and it was likely infected. During this time, Theodore Hittel had published his articles into a book in San Francisco, which later was republished in Boston, and Grizzly Adams was beginning to attain notoriety outside Northern California. Adams sought to set up his California menagerie near Union Square in New York City, attracting the attention of P.T. Barnum. Through a crooked third party, Barnum thought he purchased half-interest in Adams' menagerie. Knowing he likely wouldn't live much longer, Adams was convinced to go along with the deal, and the two became partners. In true P.T. Barnum style, their arrangement was kicked off by an incredible parade down Broadway, with Adams on the back of General Fremont, alongside two other chained grizzlies atop a wagon platform. For six weeks, the California Menagerie operated in a canvas circus tent, with Barnum managing show logistics. Barnum had a 53-page pamphlet widely distributed to advertise the show. Adams' estranged wife, who he had not seen in over a decade, arrived to care for him, with a doctor dressing his head wound daily during this time. But Adams continued to have mishaps performing with his bears, including at least two close calls where he was bitten, and an instance where a circus monkey jumped on him and bit into his old head wound. When the doctor advised him to begin settling his affairs, Adams sold his menagerie to Barnum outright, but agreed to continue performing for $60 a week for as long as he could hold out with a $500 bonus at the end of 10 weeks. After fulfilling this arrangement, he traveled home to his wife and daughter in Massachusetts. But during a bumpy carriage ride, fellow passengers were horrified by his head wound spattering blood on the carriage ceiling. At home, on his deathbed, he related to the family minister. I have attended preaching every day, Sundays and all, for the last six years. Sometimes an old grizzly gave me the sermon. Sometimes it was a panther. Often it was the thunder and lightning, the tempest, or the hurricane on the peaks of the Sierra Nevada, or in the gorges of the Rocky Mountains. But whatever preached to me, it always taught me the undying majesty of the Creator. The 48-year-old Grizzly Adams then expired October 25, 1860, 12 days before Abraham Lincoln was elected president. He was buried in his trademark buckskin outfit, and news of his death was printed in newspapers throughout the Northeast. 
P.T. Barnum continued to run the California Menagerie for the next two years, then put it up for sale. Adams Bears then traveled as part of L.B. Lentz, Mike Lipman's, and DeMott and Ward's traveling circuses up to nearly a decade after his death, after which references to them faded out of mention in the press. Over the last five years of his life, Adams had become one of America's first celebrities, predating the popularity of Buffalo Bill Cody and Mark Twain. In the mid-1870s, performers such as E.T. Goodrich began portraying Grizzly Adams in stage productions. And even though an Adams relative would later also call himself Grizzly Adams, this person was largely forgotten and the real Grizzly Adams adventures would be reprinted in the press over the years, and people that had met him would tell their stories. After the generation that could have known him died out, columnists would dig up and rewrite his stories for new readers, keeping the legend alive. In 1910, author George Wharton James listed him as one of his heroes of California. In 1946, H.S. Mazet wrote the story, The Mightiest Hunter of All, for the Saturday Evening Post. In 1966, Grizzly Adams' legend would be revived by author Richard Dillon in his book, The Legend of Grizzly Adams, California's Greatest Mountain Man. The historical and cultural impact of Grizzly Adams lives on not only in the fictional film and TV exploits of James Adams, but right on the state flag of California. The bear depicted on that flag is commonly thought to be that of Monarch, a captive grizzly once belonging to William Randolph Hearst. However, the California State Historical Society confirms the bear image used is modeled after an 1855 watercolor by gold rush artist Charles Nall, and the bear depicted is none other than Grizzly Adams' gigantic Samson. Dick Robinson's Grizzly Adams You may be surprised to learn Dan Haggerty was not the first person to portray Grizzly Adams in visual media. In 1972, the character made his debut on film, somewhat unexpectedly in The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean. Starring Paul Newman and directed by John Huston, the film depicted Grizzly Adams in an authentic manner by none other than the director himself. What are you doing there in the middle of nowhere, digging a hole? My grave! When that wheel come off my wagon, I took it for a sign. This here's my dying ground. Where are you coming from? Lived in the mountains most of my days. I was a mountain man. Knew Jim Bridger, Kit Carson, Liver Eaton Johnson. He was a good fellow when he started out. Let things get to him, though. Went bad up in the winters. Yeah, a man will do that. What's your name, mister? I'm Grizzly Adams. Direct descendant of John Quincy Adams. Sixth president of the United States. His blood is in me. But I went wild as a youth and run away to the mountains. Good life, free life, but cold. The cold, I'd go to the bars for winter and lie up with them in their cave. That's why I'm known as Grizzly. I cohabitated with the bars. But before Haggerty would take the role for the 1974 film, recall from the segment on Sun Classic Pictures that 
Following the success of 1972's Brother of the Wind, animal handler Dick Robinson had entered an agreement with Sun to produce a Grizzly Adams film. Dick Robinson, seen in front of the camera on Sun Films, Toklat, and Brother of the Wind, had been involved early on with the studio during the Mel Hardman days, when he was part owner. Right around the time Mel Hardman Productions and Robinson were enlisted by Warner Brothers to provide grizzly bears for Jeremiah Johnson, Patrick Frawley became financially vested in MHP. When the deal enabling Frawley to become majority owner devalued Robinson's share of the studio by half, Robinson divested himself of his MHP shares and was no longer an owner. However, one of his pet film projects he had on his list to do in these early days of the studio was a subject of personal fascination, that of Grizzly Adams. Robinson had bought and devoured Richard Dillon's 1966 book on the historical mountain man. As in Brother of the Wind, Robinson would both direct and star in his proposed film about the character, and his bear Willie, seen in Toklat, would play the part of Adam's bear, Ben Franklin. A second proposed film would feature Grizzly Adams and a jaguar. In July 1973, Sun agreed to pay Robinson a total of $150,000 in four installments in addition to a percentage of the completed film's gross box office. Robinson began filming in August 1973 in Alberta, Canada, and later in Arizona and Utah. Robinson's story loosely followed some elements of the real Grizzly Adams' life in the Sierra Nevada mountains, building a cabin, killing some bears and animals, and capturing others to provide to a circus, but would add other elements, such as Adams sending away for a mail-order bride. His film featured Don Shanks as an injured indigenous man he befriends, Robinson's protege Garland Wilde, and Robinson's girlfriend, Carol Elash. At the end of October, Robinson delivered some 20 hours of footage to the studio. Sun had John C. Mahon, a producer on both Chariots of the Gods and Brother of the Wind, edit the footage into a three-hour assembly cut for screening. This was screened in Los Angeles for Sun executives in January, with Robinson in attendance. In his later book, Robinson characterizes the assembly cut as embarrassing and an intentional hatchet job done on his footage, claiming this was done due to prior disagreements he had had with Mayen. Still needing additional footage to complete the film, Sun gave Robinson an additional $35,000 to shoot it. Additional scenes were shot near St. George, Utah in February and March of 1974 at filming locations traveled to in winter by Thiokol Snowcat, a truck-sized enclosed cab vehicle riding on tank-like tracks. It was during the setup for a scene where a grizzly bear was to be filmed emerging from a cave after hibernation that Robinson was injured. His grizzly bear Sunshine was not having a good day and was beginning to be uncooperative to the demands being placed on her. This continued until, well, I'll just read the passage. When she balked, I went up, took a huge breath, and gave her the hardest kick in the ass I ever gave. Sunshine unsurprisingly turned around and bit him in the leg above his boot, knocking him to the ground. Robinson was transported the three miles back to the road via snowcat, 
then by car three miles back to the house they were staying at, then transferred to another car for the trip to the closest hospital. Robinson was treated at the ER in his Grizzly Adams Mountain Man costume, which caused something of a stir at the hospital when personnel kept coming by to see the sight. After three days of Valium and rest, he went out to finish a scene they needed to shoot. Like Grizzly Adams, once on location, Robinson used the water cure system to treat the wound, soaking his injury in a freezing river. According to Robinson, it was immediately following reporting his serious injury that Sun sued him for all the production money back, in addition to $1 million in damages, and wanted to retain ownership of all filmed footage. After the 1st of June, Charles Sellier made the jump from A&E to Sun Classic and was put in charge of the Grizzly Adams production. Sellier's jaw likely dropped when he saw Robinson's footage. He realized what had been delivered, although not entirely inaccurate according to the recorded accounts of Grizzly Adams, was a completely unmarketable film that matter-of-factly depicted Robinson as Adams emptying his rifle and revolver into a she-bear, then nonchalantly musing whether or not he should also kill the bear cub. Not to mention pulling out pieces of butchered bear for the stew, simmering in the kettle over the campfire that was for dinner. Mm-mm. The staged scenes weren't far from the truth behind this production. While filming a scene depicting a hunting expedition led by Adams, Robinson shot and killed one of his own buffalo on camera with a 50 caliber rifle. The carcass was harvested and the production crew in nearby Arizona community enjoyed a buffalo barbecue. Still, Robinson contends he was given the choice to continue making the film, but under a new slave contract that would reduce his residuals by half as well as strip the director credit from him. Robinson countered with a notice that he instead wanted to buy out the rights to the film, which he maintained that his contract allowed for. Sun didn't respond, but started the film project over from scratch with a new lead actor and story, which offered a much kindler and gentler Grizzly Adams than Robinson would have depicted. While Sun's new Grizzly Adams would be a success, Dick Robinson continued to fight a legal battle with Sun over the property for at least the next five years, countersuing Sun for the box office revenue he believed he was owed for the Cellier version of the film released to theaters, claiming, They used my ideas and concepts which they didn't have a right to under the terms of the contract. A drawn-out legal back-and-forth ensued, plagued by delays, motions, and legal maneuvering finally culminating in a five-week jury trial, which largely hung on the definition of terms used in the original contract. During the trial, the three-hour assembly cut of Robinson's film, as well as the 1974 Cellier film, were both screened for the jury at the screening room at Sun's Park City Studios. Although Robinson won the trial, the judge overrode the jury decision and awarded no damages to either party. Robinson took the case to the Utah Supreme Court, which overturned the judge's decision and reinstated the jury's verdict. However, the amount of damages Robinson was entitled to would have to be settled by yet another jury trial. I found no record of another trial, 
but did find Robinson a decade later, claiming he had reached one of the largest settlements in Hollywood history at that time, as well as a financial half-interest in the Grizzly Adams series. Robinson must have also gotten back his filmed footage, for in 1982, he cobbled together his Grizzly Adams footage into a 96-minute film he released on VHS as The Rogue and Grizzly, under his Ranger Rob home video label, which even got sold into TV syndication. Character names were changed so as not to refer to Grizzly Adams, which was quite easily done since the dialogue was entirely added in post-production. At time of recording, the film is viewable on YouTube, and a viewing leaves this podcaster unsurprised that Robinson's project was scrapped and a fresh start was made. Robinson also released some Grizzly Adams series episodes, such as The Renewal and Once Upon a Starry Night under his Ranger Rob label, with his picture on the back of the case, proclaiming Dick Robinson, originator of Grizzly Adams. Whether these were authorized releases is questionable, at least. Robinson went on to write two books, Never Kick a Bear in Your Bedroom Slippers, in 1980, and Life on the Edge, a pocket-sized paperback in 1990, in which he related stories from his years of animal handling for film and TV. In 1983, he attempted to open a movie studio, Theme Park, near Moab, Utah, that would have been themed around his Ranger Rob character and Willie the Bear. But this never materialized. If it hasn't been clear by now, Dick Robinson was quite a character himself. In press interviews, he would relate how actress Loretta Young got him interested in a number of esoteric topics, leading to several eccentric beliefs he held. One of these is most interesting as it relates to our discussion here. For a little-known detail about Dick Robinson is that he believed himself to have been Grizzly Adams in a former life. The last published reference I find to Dick Robinson is in 1991, where he was speaking to Rotary Clubs in Utah and Colorado, promoting his books and videos. Following this, Dick Robinson seemed to completely fade from public view. One source told me he last saw Robinson around 1995 at a local Wendy's in the Salt Lake area, living in his car, still selling his books and videos. The Casting of Dan Haggerty Dan Haggerty was born in Los Angeles in 1942 to parents Donald and Ruth Haggerty. They split when he was three, and custody of Dan was given to his father, who reportedly sent him to military boarding schools for the majority of his early schooling. He was thus never allowed to have a dog or cat as a pet, but grew up admiring the lions during outings to zoos and circuses. Young Dan didn't respond well to the structured life at boarding schools and repeatedly ran away from them. After his father remarried, the family settled in Burbank when he was 16, and he was finally allowed to attend regular high school. While his father worked as a film technician, Dan recalled living a life right out of American graffiti, centered around high school athletics, hot rods, and girls. At Burroughs High School, he was an accomplished gymnast, and at 17 was selected for the Human Pyramid, 
that got to relay the Olympic torch for the 1960 Winter Olympic Games. But even before his senior year, Dan had married his high school sweetheart, Diane, at the age of 16 in a May 1959 Las Vegas ceremony. Dan would also work a summer job in Vegas as a lifeguard at the Sahara Hotel. Following high school, he and Diane started living in what Dan called a decrepit cabin on 10 acres in the Santa Monica Mountains north of Malibu. Their first effort in raising wildlife was an African lion cub named Simba to be used in movies and TV shows. Simba had been sired by Major, an adult captive lion, during an African film shoot, and Simba's mother had died. The Haggertys acquired Simba at the age of five days from Jungle Land in Thousand Oaks, California, for $150 that they obtained by selling the living room couch. Simba was so tame he would sleep with the Haggertys' young daughters. Among the other animals added to the Haggerty menagerie in these early years were a leopard, two mountain lions, seven dogs, and Simba's 600-pound father, Major. Tragically, Simba went missing in a suspected kidnapping, and after several days, the four-and-a-half-month-old cub the Haggertys had lovingly raised from infancy was found on display in a Sunset Boulevard taxidermy shop. This wasn't the only occasion an animal strayed off the Haggerty acreage. The following year, another lion cub managed to run off, but fortunately was found hiding out in a neighbor's barn. One day while buying feed for Simba at Jungle Land, Dan would meet someone who would end up changing the course of his life and career, English animal trainer Stuart Raffle. Less than a year older than Haggerty, Raffle grew up on a farm in the UK, working with horses and other animals. Immigrating to the U.S., his first job was training animals for motion pictures, and he soon started his own business, renting animals for film and TV. Raffle would walk down Hollywood Boulevard with a chained lion, which served to advertise his abilities to those in the film industry. Raffle and Haggerty joined forces, and their menagerie grew to encompass 30 lions, 6 chimpanzees, a few bears, and an elephant. Approaching Walt Disney Studios with their list of available animals, Haggerty and Raffle found work on Lieutenant Robin Crusoe, USN, Monkey's Uncle, Monkey's Go Home, and other Disney films. The athletic, weightlifting, beardless Haggerty also began to appear in front of the camera in films such as 1964's Muscle Beach Party. Man, this is one crazy beach. You can say that again. Man, this is one crazy beach. That same year, he was introduced to the public as Hollywood's new Tarzan in a Christmas parade in Tarzana, California, sponsored by Jungle Land. The muscular Haggerty had posed for a statue of Tarzan commissioned by the Tarzana Chamber of Commerce. Due to local controversy over the statue, it was never erected. However, Haggerty did get to become Tarzan, sort of. Hearing of a new Tarzan TV series being produced, Raffle and Haggerty took their leopard, lion, and chimp to the high-rise offices of producer Cy Weintraub on Sunset Boulevard, who hired them on the spot. 
They thus got to work on the Ron Ely Tarzan series, as well as on 1967's Tarzan and the Great River, filming in Brazil. When star Mike Henry was bitten on the jaw by one of the chimpanzees, requiring some 20 stitches and a three-week recovery, Haggerty took over as stand-in to complete filming. On location for 1969's My Side of the Mountain, he had to chase down a brown bear he was handling after it took off into the woods. This led to a 15-minute brawl with the 500-pound animal, where Haggerty was nearly knocked unconscious. In the end, the bear was recaged and a replacement was sent for. Also in 1969, the motorcycle enthusiast Haggerty became involved in Easy Rider, both in an uncredited bit part as an unnamed hippie smoking a bowl with Luke Askew's Highway Stranger and as a bike wrangler, outfitting the motorcycles with customized accessories. Following production, he was gifted one of the iconic Captain America choppers from the film. Following Easy Rider, he appeared in a string of biker movies such as Angels Die Hard and Chrome and Hot Leather. When Stuart Raffle decided to try his hand at making a movie himself, the result was 1971's The Tinder Warrior. Filmed at the Okefenokee Swamp in Georgia, Dan Haggerty would now have a lead role as Cal, a moonshiner with a thin scraggly beard who wantonly kills any animals he comes across in the swamp. Young Sammy, played by Charles Lee, who is a friend to the animals of the swamp, leads the animals in a revolt against Cal and his evil paw. The film was advertised on the cover of Box Office Magazine, touting that it had been booked in some 300 theaters in the southern states. A billboard for the film is also seen in a 1972 Mission Impossible episode. This brings us to Haggerty's fortuitous involvement in 1974's When the North Wind Blows, being produced by a certain independent Utah studio. In North Wind, Haggerty worked both in front of the camera as well as behind the scenes, wrangling a Siberian white tiger and other animals, while wife Diane worked as script supervisor. The writer and the director of this film was none other than Stuart Raffle. The story goes that producer Patrick Frawley, watching film dailies, took note of Haggerty, now complete with a full mane of golden hair and full bushy beard. According to a June 1977 TV Guide article, Frawley asked a script supervisor, Who's that Mongolian? Diane Haggerty replied, That Mongolian is my husband, who is Irish. He's doing bit parts in the picture because the Tigers won't listen to anyone else. Frawley said, Tell Raffle to make the Mongolian the star. Diane said, We can't. We already have a star, and the picture is nearly finished. Frawley, Then make the Mongolian's part bigger. He's got great screen presence. Haggerty was then given the role he would forever be known for in the film production of Grizzly Adams that was started over from scratch when it was decided to scrap the Dick Robinson version. With some $235,000 already blown on that scrapped production, the Charles Sellier Dan Haggerty version would utilize a skeleton crew and adhere to a strict budget of only $125,000. A script was written by Lawrence Dobkin, who was primarily an actor 
but had written for TV series Klondike, The Rifleman, and Tarzan. Don Shanks was held over from the Robinson version, and the character of Crow Brave Nakoma thus came to life. Shanks wore multiple hats on the film, also serving as makeup artist and in costuming and wardrobe. A native of Piazza, Illinois, Shanks grew up on a farm and had cut his teeth on TV westerns of the 1950s, as well as adventure films such as The Crimson Pirate, and would often play pirates or cowboys and Indians, as was so popular at the time. Shanks recalled how he got involved with the original Grizzly Adams film productions in an interview with the Halloween Movies website. I was 22 at the time, and I was doing a play that required a lot of prosthetic makeup. And some people in the audience said that they'd really enjoyed my performance, as I was playing an old man. About two months later, I received a call from them that there was a movie in town that needed someone to work in prosthetic makeup. So I called the production, and they said, We need a guy to be in makeup and wrestle a bear. And so I asked them, Do you need any actors? They said, yeah, we are looking for an Indian in makeup, and they'd have to wrestle a bear. And I told them, well, I'm part Indian, and I'll wrestle a bear. And that was my first film. Shanks, who is of Cherokee and Illini descent, appeared in other Sun Classic films in addition to the NBC Grizzly Adams series, and was considered for the role of Tonto in 1981's The Legend of the Lone Ranger, with original Lone Ranger actor Jay Silverheels set to play Tonto's father. But the producers of that film chose to go in another direction for the role. The other two actors filling out the very small cast were Lisa Jones as young Peg and Marjorie Harper as adult Peg, both Salt Lake City locals. The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams, the 1974 film. Filming commenced July 19, 1974, on location in the Uinta Mountains near Park City, Utah. Among the small crew filming Grizzly Adams on location were director Richard Friedenberg, director of photography George Stapleford, second unit cameraman Steve Gray, and assistant cameraman Kim Marks. Shooting days would begin at 7 a.m., and a 19-member crew traveling in seven vehicles would change locations 15 to 20 times on an average shooting day. Locations in the Uinta and Wasatch National Forests were used for filming, which included Provo Canyon, Upper Bridal Veil Falls, Deer Creek Reservoir, and Bald Mountain Pass, among others. Some scenes were also shot near Payson, Arizona. This was director Friedenberg's first film, and he was held to Cellier's strict computer software tabulated budget. Friedenberg would later helm several Sun productions, as well as write the films Dying Young, A River Runs Through It, and The Education of Little Tree, among others. George Stapleford, who had worked on the Dick Robinson production, had been bumped up to DOP for this version. He had moved to Utah to work on Grizzly Adams, and was known for his camera placement in precarious positions, where perhaps only mountain goats had gone before. Creatively placing cameras to ensure coverage of scenes, he would have crew sometimes anchor themselves to the side of a mountain cliff, or in the middle of a raging river, to obtain needed shots. Stapleford later worked as a videographer at Salt Lake City's KUTV, for 24 years. 
Second Unit Cameraman Steve Gray would lead a smaller crew into the wilderness to capture wildlife footage. He had to constantly monitor the sunlight as the production depended on consistent natural light to illuminate their subjects. Assistant Cameraman Kim Marks was responsible for cleaning film equipment daily once shooting had wrapped and the crew had headed back to the Park City headquarters, where the production leased two houses for offices and sleeping quarters. It was here the dailies would be developed and viewed. Once equipment was cleaned thoroughly and log sheets filled out, the crew was finally done for the day, typically around 10 p.m. Dan Haggerty would stay at the skier's lodge with his two older daughters, while wife Diane was back home in L.A. with their youngest daughter. The film wrapped in October and was released to theaters in early November 1974, mainly in the Midwest states of Minnesota, Iowa, Montana, and Oklahoma. As we covered, the film was distributed through Sun's method of forewalling and thus never had what we would consider to be a wide national release. There were at most only about 50 film prints of Grizzly Adams that would travel the country, playing mainly in smaller film markets over the course of over two years. The film played well from mid-November to April 1975, after which box office revenues took a dive. Sun's market research found that much of the target audience for the film owned RVs or campers and were out on road trips during the summer. When they brought the film back in November, it again performed well. Now, box office figures for films of this era can be scarce and contradictory. One figure now widely cited online was that Grizzly Adams did $65 million in box office revenue. However, going back to original period news articles reveals Sun would repeatedly cite the figure of $24 million, starting in May 1977. The unsourced claim that the film did $65 million originated the very next month in a TV Guide article written by Bill Davidson, which was reprinted in the Wall Street Journal two weeks later. Don Freeman then quoted this figure in a syndicated news article in October. Outside of those three mentions, remaining press articles of the era all cite the $24 million figure. The $65 million figure didn't resurface until 31 years later, when republished on the obscure website crazyabouttv.com in December 2008. When star Dan Haggerty passed away in January 2016, UK newspaper The Telegraph also cited the $65 million figure, which has since been repeated endlessly as established fact. A separate figure of $45 million also appeared in November 2015, reported by the website Deadline, when Grizzly Adams brand owner Todd Swindell teamed with Abrams Artists Agency to handle right sales of the brand. Deadline does not reference how they calculated the $45 million figure, which is also listed on box office website The Numbers. In 1982, Variety magazine published an official figure of $21,895,000 for the 1974 film. Much of this figure would have been earned during its original run from November 1974 to mid-1977. 
As this amount was gradually earned across a two-and-a-half-year period, it is unfair to place it in box office film lists for any particular year. However, the film's total take would place it in a similar range of domestic revenue earned by Airport 1975 and The Longest Yard during their original runs. While popular with ticket buyers, critics were not so easily impressed. A TV Guide review huffed, The story is banal and completely lacking in credibility. The filmmaking matches, with long, silent passages that feature an unnecessary narration, telling exactly what's taking place on the screen. It's filmmaking at its most basic commodity level. Critic Les Blumenthal said, It splices some mediocre nature footage, tossed in a few good scenes which are quickly destroyed by the bad ones, tied together and the whole thing with a plot, which is supposed to give it some cohesion, but is really no more than a justification for releasing the movie in the first place. At any rate, the film performed so well, producer Selyer was spurred to do a larger budget pseudo-remake shot on 35mm with better production values. The Adventures of Frontier Fremont, again using Dan Haggerty, Don Shanks, director Richard Friedenberg, and cinematographer George Stapleford, was released November 1975. Fremont, in spirit, was another Grizzly Adams film, albeit with different characters. This time Haggerty was Jacob Fremont, moving from the hustle and bustle of Ohio to the wilderness to get away from it all. Writer David O'Malley added an additional old mountain man, prospector-type character played by Denver Pyle, and we began to see the TV formula that would become familiar take shape. O'Malley grew up reading the encyclopedia, as well as absorbing Roy Rogers, Ray Bradbury stories, and The Twilight Zone, and like many burgeoning filmmakers, made his own movies with an 8mm camera. Following stints in the military and TV news, he ended up in Southern California, hired to work on John Denver's Rocky Mountain Christmas TV special, along with his college friend, Thomas Chapman. It was there in L.A. that Charles Sellier hired O'Malley as an assistant, and he ended up writing the ad copy for the trailers of The Outer Space Connection. Working on the marketing for that film, he met Grizzly Adams director Richard Friedenberg. Both were alums of the University of Michigan, and they hit it off in the editing room. Following the release of Grizzly Adams, Charles Sellier called both of them into his office and asked O'Malley to write the screenplay and Friedenberg to direct what became Frontier Fremont. Cellier later shared with them his ideas for the climax of the story, as told to me by David O'Malley. He excitedly described how Fremont would become caught up in a violent rainstorm that goes on for many days and nights. As rivers start to violently flow over the riverbanks, all the wilderness animals would begin to panic, racing for high ground. That's when Jacob Fremont would spring into action and like a frontier Noah, would save all the terrified animals and lead them to safety on, I guess, a very large raft. Richard and I looked at each other, stunned by what we had heard. After a prolonged silence and panicked thoughts of a budget out of control, helpless animals drowning, and impossible special effects, we calmly suggested, why don't we just burn down the forest? 
After all, though still a crazy idea, it would be drier and cheaper. And that is exactly what we ended up doing. Cellier's smooth talking facilitated the proper clearances from authorities to film some controlled burns that were scheduled, and the filmmakers got their forest fire. The fort seen at the opening of the film was originally constructed of heavy paper materials, but an overnight rain disintegrated it in the night before filming. Discovering this in the wee morning hours, the production ordered raw tree logs from a Salt Lake lumberyard. O'Malley related, By 6 a.m., the crew had dug trenches where the fort's walls had been. By 7 a.m., trucks of raw logs arrived, and everyone, grips, director, writer, makeup artists, wardrobe, drivers, camera operator, sound recordist, hurriedly raised the high walls of the fortress, securing them upright in the hastily dug ditches. By 8 a.m., members of the local mountain man reenactors arrived outfitted in authentic period clothing and armed with antique rifles. It was a frantic race against the clock, but by 8.30 a.m. we had Dan Haggerty on set and ready to film the elaborate opening sequence. Initially titled Beyond the Wind River by O'Malley, a title change was ordered by Sun Executive Raylan Jensen, who was said to have come up with the adventures of Frontier Fremont although O'Malley still questions this official story. I actually believe that Chuck came up with the title himself, and he was simply looking for a way to justify keeping it. We all thought the new title was kind of corny, but we were ultimately overruled by the suits calling these shots. Frontier Fremont ended up doing $5.5 million in box office. Far more importantly, though, the film ended up being instrumental in selling Grizzly Adams as a TV series concept. While Frontier Fremont played in theaters, the Grizzly Adams film was sold to NBC, which aired on a Monday night, May 17, 1976, leading the evening against a lineup of reruns of CBS sitcoms and a double episode of Sitcom on the Rocks followed by the Emmy Awards on ABC. The airing handily won the evening with a 26.5 rating and a 43 share of the viewing audience, obtaining the highest ratings for the NBC Monday Night Movie since they had aired The Godfather in 1974. NBC executives had also screened Frontier Fremont and noted the elements that the Grizzly Adams film lacked, which included the character dynamic between Fremont and the old prospector-type character played by Denver Pyle better story structure, and the much-needed addition of humor, among other things. Story elements that made NBC's Paul Klein exclaim, That's what we want. If Grizzly Adams were to work as a series, some tweaking would have to be done to create a viable series format. Meanwhile, NBC, who had just introduced their new Trapezoid N logo that year, announced eight new scripted series for fall 1976. Military drama, Ba Ba Black Sheep. Sci-fi actioner, Gemini Man, a reworking of the prior year's Invisible Man. Period drama, Gibbsville. Western, The Quest. Serpico, based on the 1973 film. Snip, a David Brenner vehicle, 
Medical drama Quincy M.E., to be introduced first as part of the NBC Sunday mystery movie rotation, and comedy variety series Van Dyke and Company. These were slated to air alongside NBC's returning lineup of shows, heavy on police and detectives, in addition to family hits Little House on the Prairie and The Wonderful World of Disney. While Baa Baa Black Sheep and especially Quincy would be strong performers, before it even premiered, NBC pulled Snip from the lineup at the last minute, with seven episodes filmed and five already in the can. Created by James Comack, who had delivered TV hits Chico and the Man and Welcome Back Cotter, Snip would have featured the popular David Brenner as a straight Cape Cod hairdresser working with his ex-wife, Leslie Ann Warren, and a gay co-worker played by Walter Wonderman. The series was a riff on the 1975 film Shampoo, with adult themes heavily watered down for TV audiences. But even though they denied it, NBC must have gotten cold feet about presenting an openly gay main character on their network. However, September 1976 saw the gayest fall season in TV history anyway, as viewers witnessed, in order, the rugged footballer friend of Mel Sharples revealed to be gay on Alice, Barney Miller getting a visit from two flamboyant Greenwich Village regulars, the Nancy Walker show introduce a gay recurring character, Bob Newhart's therapy group get a new member, a gay man played by Howard Hessman, Phyllis Lindstrom's boyfriend revealed to be gay on Phyllis, and Willie's friend Zeke arrested in a gay bar and revealed why he would go to such an establishment on Family. Matt Baum on YouTube has an excellent video examining this interesting point in TV history. But all of this was little consolation for Walter Wonderman when Snip never saw the light of day in the U.S. His only remaining credit ironically ended up being a season two guest spot on Grizzly Adams. NBC, along with all the networks, were also having an issue with the recently instituted Family Hour, where the first hour of primetime was set aside for programming required to be family-friendly and contain nothing considered objectionable for young children. NBC was actually heavily to blame for this FCC edict in response to their early evening airing of the TV movie Born Innocent in 1974 where a young teen girl was sexually assaulted by a gang of other girls in a prison shower, in a scene that is still shocking today. The family hour disrupted TV schedules, causing existing shows to be shifted around, and clearly limited what new shows could air in this time slot, which was filled with fare like milquetoast variety shows, largely inoffensive sitcoms, or adventure shows that appealed to youngsters. Family Hour series standouts that became appointment viewing were NBC's Little House on the Prairie and CBS's The Waltons. If you're thinking a series like Grizzly Adams would be just what the doctor ordered for Family Hour, you'd be right. When the fall season started, NBC had to do a significant reworking of the schedule, when SNP, as well as Gibbsville, were abruptly pulled first patching the hole with the 90-minute NBC Movie of the Week on Wednesday nights. When most of NBC's new shows flopped, 13 replacements for midseason were ordered. Knowing it would need to fill a family hour slot at midseason, 
In September, NBC ordered 13 episodes of The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams, which made big news in the Utah press a month before it hit mainstream entertainment columns. Utah Governor Calvin Rampton announced in a press conference the television series would be filmed entirely in state at a budget of $3.25 million, with filming to start by the end of that month and a slated air date of January 1977. Meanwhile, the Grizzly Adams film, as well as Frontier Fremont, not to mention films like Across the Great Divide and The Adventures of the Wilderness Family, played in theaters across the country, which served to whet viewer appetite for further wilderness adventure. This little handful keeps me running, and that keeps me thirsty. So I reach for one thing. New improved Nest Tea iced tea mix. Nest Tea's as natural as all outdoors. It's no ordinary mix. Just look at that rich color. Tastes as clear as sunshine, too. Because now Nest Tea slow brews its tea. Then has just the right blend of lemon and sugar. Oh, new slow brewed Nest Tea iced tea mix. There's nothing like it under the sun. Behind the Scenes of Grizzly Adams In the series, Dan Haggerty and Don Shanks would reprise their film roles, and female grizzly Bozo the Bear would return as Ben. This series would also introduce Mad Jack, a white-bearded, cantankerous, prospector-type character that would regularly visit Adams and bring needed supplies. 56-year-old Denver Pyle would thus join the cast in a role similar to the one he played in Frontier Fremont. Pyle, born in Bethune, Colorado in 1920 to a working farm family, had a slew of jobs as a young adult before making his way to Los Angeles, finding employment as an NBC page. However, World War II came along and Pyle enlisted in the Merchant Marines. Following the war and back in L.A., he took acting classes and performed in live theater while working at an aircraft plant. His first role was uncredited on the 1947 film The Guilt of Janet Ames. Roles were at first sparse, but after just a few years, the new medium of television came along and Pyle found regular spots on TV westerns like The Cisco Kid, The Roy Rogers Show, the Range Rider, and that TV mainstay, Gunsmoke, where he appeared as 14 different characters during its 20-year run. The prematurely gray actor first grew his beard for a role in the 1968 Dean Martin film, Bandolero. It was thus a familiar accessory by the time of 1975's Frontier Fremont, when writer David O'Malley added the Big Bill Driggers character whose narrative framed the story. The Grizzly Adams series would borrow this character and framing device, renaming him Mad Jack, who was always accompanied by his stubborn burrow, number seven. One week before Grizzly Adams premiered as a series, NBC aired The Adventures of Frontier Fremont as the movie of the week on February 2nd, 1977, giving viewers a flavor of what they would be seeing in the series which may have led to some initial viewer confusion and people conflating the two similar storylines. 
This was because the series took the general backstory of the Grizzly Adams film, but modeled its structure and storytelling after Frontier Fremont. Watching the two films prior to the series, this became so obvious that I concluded writer David O'Malley probably should have been credited as series co-creator, a sentiment he agreed with. I also was very surprised I didn't get co-creator credit. So many facets from Fremont were brought to the Grizz series. The mean Bill Driggers character, played by Denver Pyle in Frontier Fremont, was lifted for the series and renamed Mad Jack. And of course, the big one was Jacob Fremont, played by Dan Haggerty, who then became Grizzly Adams in the series. But Chuck Sellier had cleverly made sure that there was always language buried in his contracts with young writers and directors, preventing them from claiming created by or any other assertion of future rights to the material they had created. And he craftily exerted his own control and ownership of all rights to the movies and programs he produced. Cellier was indeed credited with creating the series and as executive producer at the conclusion of episodes. James L. Conway was executive in charge of production. Conway was a Sun regular credited as a writer, producer, and director with over a dozen Sun film and TV efforts. He later was a director on Matt Houston, MacGyver, Charmed, and frequently used on the various Star Trek series. Story editor Paul Hunter managed the writers and script assignments from Sun's Los Angeles office. Hunter had been an executive at ABC and started writing for television. He has writing credits on WKRP in Cincinnati, Too Close for Comfort, Who's the Boss, and a number of 80s sitcoms. Hunter is something of an enigma outside his TV credits, and the Writers Guild lists him as deceased. Directors of photography on the series included Henning Schellerup and Paul Hipp. The Danish-born Schellerup immigrated to the U.S. in 1952 and got his start in film at around age 40, working on grindhouse-style sexploitation and blaxploitation films. In the mid-1970s, he began working regularly on Sun Productions. Paul Hipp's cinema beginnings are quite similar and his work includes cult favorites The Incredible Two-Headed Transplant and the genuinely creepy Grave of the Vampire. The majority of series episodes were directed by Jack Hively and Richard Friedenberg. Hively was exposed to the movie business at a young age, as his father George became a screenwriter, writing film shorts for Universal before young Jack was old enough for kindergarten. The elder Hively also later became a film editor, and this is how Jack started. So, Jack started as an assistant film editor in his early 20s, then directing films before he was 30, becoming a journeyman director for RKO and Universal in the 1940s. When World War II intervened, he served in the Army Signal Corps, where he was used to direct Air Force training films. When he returned to civilian life, he began to work on TV when that medium came along. He was used many times on Death Valley Days and Lassie before coming on to Grizzly Adams to helm 15 episodes. Richard Friedenberg, whose credits seemed to begin with the 1974 Grizzly Adams film, directed 10 episodes and later wrote 1991's Dying Young, 1992's A River Runs Through It, for which he received an Oscar nomination, and 1997's 
the education of Little Tree, which he also directed. The last word on the filmmaker was that he was teaming with writer-director Mickey Levy to adapt Yoav Bloom's sci-fi romance novel, The Confidence Makers, into a feature film. Award-winning director Sharon Miller, who helmed four episodes, was also a sound editor for Sun Classic, working on several of their films, including 1974's Grizzly Adams. She later directed 1978's The House of the Dead, as well as TV series In Search Of and Cagney and Lacey. The previously mentioned David O'Malley, who directed a second season episode, had also been used to write and direct Sun's Guardian of the Wilderness in 1976, which told the true story of Canadian-American Galen Clark, who, fighting tuberculosis, traveled west expecting to die. Recovering, he was the first white man to discover the Mariposa Grove of giant sequoia trees and fought for its preservation against private interests of developers, inspiring President Lincoln to give Yosemite protected status, paving the way for the creation of the national park system. O'Malley would also work with Sharon Miller on The House of the Dead, as well as write episodes of Mork and Mindy and films the Boogans, and 1985's Kid Coulter. Sun's practice of hiring local, non-union cast and crew when possible led to quite a number of people entering the industry as a result of getting started on Grizzly Adams. Young Kristen Curry, seen in the first episode Adam's Cub, later acted in the Sun-produced Greatest Heroes of the Bible and Donner Pass, The Road to Survival. Oscar Rowland from Salt Lake City made a 30-year career out of supporting actor roles and was seen several times on Touched by an Angel and Everwood. John Bishop, who played Robbie Cartman, continues to work as an actor even now and was recently seen on Law & Order True Crime, Longmire, and The Good Doctor. As a musician, he also has written and performed songs for four feature films, and a TV miniseries. Garland Wilde, who started as Dick Robinson's assistant as an animal handler, began working as a gaffer and key grip on Grizzly Adams and other Sun Productions, and continued working as a freelance gaffer and lighting technician for the next 40 years, traveling the world, working for Disney and other studios on films such as A Far-Off Place, A Good Man in Africa, and The Jungle Book. Sound editor Donald Maloof went on to work on Lou Grant and over 100 major studio films over the next 45 years. Salt Lake native Dale Angel had worked sound effects on In Search of Noah's Ark, worked foley and sound design on the Grizzly Adams series, and continued working for Sun on productions into the 1980s. He later formed his own studio, Lab 6, and became a professor at University of Utah, teaching film editing and production. Now retired, he runs YouTube channel Toy Man Television, traveling America looking for people who are perfecting the art of screwing around with things like race cars, model railroads, aircraft, scale models, and so forth. Grizzly Adams location manager Dennis Williams, who got his start with Sun Classics, stayed with them throughout the mid-80s, then worked on various TV movies and theatrical films like The Sandlot, A Home of Our Own, 
and Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. He commented on his time with Sun for a 1992 Salt Lake Tribune article on Utah film production. The Grizzly Adam days were a great school. We learned how to get the most out of a dollar. But there is more quality work now, movies with higher budgets. Filming on the series began right around the beginning of October 1976, so producers were working against the clock when it came to favorable weather conditions at the 7,800-foot Smith-Morehouse Reservoir, located some 22 miles northwest of Park City, Utah, as the crow flies. But the road trip there was at best about a one-hour trip in good weather. This location, high in the Uinta-Wasatch-Cache National Forest, was somewhat remote, even though by mileage it is relatively close to the ski resort burg of Park City. The area, located just east of a campground at the end of a two-mile dirt road, has no landline telephone service. And until recently, visitors reported perhaps a single bar of cell phone reception. The spot was not remote enough to keep away tourists tripping out to catch a glimpse of filming once word got out regarding the forest location of the Grizzly Adams cabin. Located in a meadow just north of the reservoir, on some days Haggerty, Pyle, and Shanks would have an audience of several families watching at a distance from across the creek. On other days, entire scout troops would show up to meet their favorite mountain man. The amazing wilderness location had other perks for those attuned to outdoor life. Denver Pyle commented, If you eat a fast lunch, you can have 45 minutes of trout fishing before you go back to work. Other nearby areas were used for scenes and panorama shots. For example, viewers will likely recognize Bridal Vale Falls near Orem that is seen a number of times throughout the series. Even though press releases had announced the first season would be filmed entirely in Utah, with filming continuing into mid-January, winter weather forced the production to move south to a location near Payson, Arizona, where portions of the 1974 film had been shot. When the series was renewed for the fall of 1977, the producers intended to return to their Utah location to begin the season. However, the amount of traffic at the campground nearest the filming location had increased so much, producers initially felt it would be virtually impossible to continue filming there. While a return to Payson was considered, Sun Classic started to work with the U.S. Forest Service to resolve this issue. Some resolution must have been reached, since the production ended up staying in Utah through the summer of 1977 filming the first half of season two, but the coming winter weather meant they would need to shoot the last string of episodes elsewhere, as they had done the prior year. Several potential locations in south-central and southwestern New Mexico were scouted in early August 1977. They were specifically looking for a meadow with background mountain scenery near running water to match the previously filmed episodes as closely as possible. Eventually selecting the Rudoso area, the production was granted a special use permit by the U.S. Forest Service to film on forest land there. On September 23, 1977, the crew relocated to Rudoso, New Mexico for a three-month shoot of the second half of Season 2. The Bonito Lake area and Mescalero Reservation 
all located in the Lincoln National Forest, were used for actual location filming. Sun's menagerie of some 50 to 70 animals were housed at Big Bear Canyon near Bonito Lake in a makeshift compound of cages. By mid-December 1977, however, crews began packing up the production to be transferred back to Payson, Arizona, for filming of the final remaining episodes due to long-range weather forecasts for the Redoso area. Locations close to Happy Jack, Strawberry, and Pine, Arizona were used. During Arizona filming, Haggerty and the trained animal menagerie put on a show at the Burt Sprague Ranch to benefit the Northern Gila County Historical Society. The finale episode was again filmed back on familiar ground in Utah over the first half of March 1978. Now snow-covered locations near the Ontario Mine, Oakley, and the cabin near the Smith-Morehouse Reservoir were all used. If you're like me, you wonder what became of the log cabins constructed at the three filming locations used. Well, agreements with the U.S. Forest Service meant the filming locations were required to be returned to their natural state once they were done with filming. This meant the cabins and any trace of them were removed following production, destroying them in the process. However, the Arizona cabin had a different fate. Bert Sprague, owner of the ranch where the animal menagerie was housed during filming near Payson, suggested to Sun that the Arizona cabin be dismantled and moved into the city of Payson to be reassembled alongside the historic old Payson jail as an attraction. The cabin was carefully moved log by log, courtesy of Heber White, a local of Christopher Creek. Payson High School shop teacher Bob Wahlberg and his students got involved, reconstructing the roof, door, and windows. Fundraisers were held to finance the restoration, and the Historical Society worked to furnish the cabin with appropriate table, bed, and chairs. The historic jail and Grizzly Adams cabin became Payson's first museum open to the public. Some years later, the Historical Society negotiated to acquire another location as a site for a new museum. They planned to move the Grizzly Adams cabin again to the new location. This time, the cabin did not survive the attempt. Over the years, the original logs had dry-rotted, and as it was being disassembled, the entire cabin simply fell apart. The 13 episodes of the first season performed well on Wednesday nights at 8, 7 central and ended up being NBC's fifth highest rated show, airing against The Bionic Woman on ABC and Good Times followed by The Jacksons on CBS. Even so, the series was not a guaranteed renewal as it barely edged into the top 40 shows overall. Industry Trade Mag Broadcasting listed it next to Policewoman and CPO Sharky in a list of NBC's marginal shows. However, the series did receive a renewal for the fall of 1977, as NBC ordered an additional nine new series, which ironically included former Grizzly Adams competitor The Bionic Woman, having been dropped by ABC. Other series were The Richard Pryor Show, Man from Atlantis, What Really Happened to the Class of 65, The Oregon Trail, Rosetti and Ryan, 
Big Hawaii, Off the Wall, and a light police adventure set on Southern California highways named Chips. Not listed in this initial order of shows were sitcom spinoff Sanford Arms and James at 15, which was the subject of another forgotten TV podcast. Reviews were somewhat mixed. Owen McNally called the series a snug and cozy haven for youngsters, calling it more the call of the mild than of the wild. No one gets shot or even half shot, maimed or mutilated, not even in the name of the law. New York Times critic John Leonard called out the splendid location shots of Utah and Arizona, an acting that is almost as splendid as the locations. UPI's Joan Hanauer pointed out Haggerty's untrained voice, noting that he was not only upstaged, but outacted by a bear. But Toledo Blade critic Norman Dresser's negative review received so much hate mail from readers, he felt forced to respond ten days later, standing by his review while adding a backhanded compliment that there were worse shows on TV due to their exploitation of violence and sex. Following the first season, star Dan Haggerty defended the series from critics in a 1977 interview. America is noted for its family relations. Everything is family-oriented. Family restaurants, family carnivals, family shows, family television. But somewhere along the line, family television got obscured with a lot of violence. Entertainment was filtered with violence. People have accepted this show because it's basic. It just goes back to squirrels and bears and people and mountains. It's also an easy show to watch. You don't have to be a genius to get through the plots. It's just a good hour-long entertainment show that anybody in the family can watch. Grandma or kids or teenage boys. I think people are ready for a nice, easy family show again. And that's what we're trying to put across. Regardless of what critics thought of the show, viewers clearly loved it. The success of the first short season, in fact, triggered the preparation of a slew of licensed merchandise for the 1977 holiday season. This included a Knickerbocker line of plush toys that included Ben the Bear, Number 7 the Mule, and Joshua the Raccoon. An Aladdin lunchbox, Mattel action figures of Grizzly Adams and Nakoma, Viewmaster reels, at least two board games, jigsaw puzzles, coloring books, iron-on decals, trash cans, a Halloween costume from Collegeville, and at least according to Arrested Development, a sleeping bag. The Grizzly Adams brand generated more than $140 million of sales of licensed products in the late 1970s, the equivalent of nearly $688 million today. So Grizzly Adams returned in the fall, this time for a full season on Wednesday, September 28th, again on against Good Times, now followed by new sitcom Busting Loose on CBS, and a new competitor on ABC that would end up giving Grizzly Adams a run for its money. The family comedy drama Eight is Enough, which would end up being the 12th highest rated show for the season. NBC's Family Hour presentation of Grizzly Adams' second season received positive notes from the PTA, who for the first time published a list of acceptable and objectionable network TV programs in February 
1978. They named 10 programs that provided a positive contribution to the quality of life in America, lack of offensive content, and high overall quality. These were ABC's Eight is Enough and Donnie and Marie, CBS's The Fitzpatrick's, Rafferty, The Waltons, and 60 Minutes, and NBC's Little House on the Prairie, Mulligan Stew, The Wonderful World of Disney, and The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams. I'm sure you want to know what made the PTA's naughty lists. For violence, there was Kojak, Charlie's Angels, Policewoman, The Rockford Files, The Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman, Starsky and Hutch, and Man from Atlantis. For overall poor quality, Soap, The Red Fox Show, Maud, Three's Company, Welcome Back Cotter, Busting Loose, and Man from Atlantis and Kojak pulling double duty, making both lists. Ironically, the family hour requirement was now moot, as it had been struck down in court and ruled unconstitutional on November 4, 1976, seven weeks after Grizzly Adams' initial series order. Still, in general, the TV networks voluntarily followed the spirit of the family hour until, I might argue, the 1985 fall season came along when CBS inexplicably slotted the revival of The Twilight Zone in this time slot, a series which had been intended for later in the evening and included some truly frightening and violent episodes. Then newcomer Fox came along and ignored it altogether, scheduling Werewolf and Married with Children in the time slot, raising the ire of Michigan socialite Terry Ricolta, who led an advertiser boycott against the network. But back in the 1977-78 TV season, Grizzly Adams started the second season ranking 30th in the Premier Week ratings, but tumbled to finish out the season with an 18.1 Nielsen rating, ranking 48th out of 104 shows on television. This time around, it was included in lists of shows that would likely receive a cancellation which was announced in mid-May 1978, along with about a third of NBC's programs. However, as is often the case, there was likely more to the cancellation than just Nielsen ratings, as there were difficulties that went on behind the scenes. Producer Leonard Kaufman interestingly maintained that the animal characters themselves created difficulties for writers of episodes. There are very few writers who can do our show, because it necessitates a love for and an understanding of animals. If you sit down to write for Hawaii Five-O or Beretta, you know specifically what your problems can be and you set them up. But it doesn't work that way for us. Our perimeters are very small. We might dwell for two minutes on a situation between Adams and Ben. In the average writer's mind, that's not story material. There was also friction between NBC and Charles Sellier, who, following his research, disagreed with the network over the concepts and plot lines that would make it into episodes. This brings us to Sun Classics Audience Testing. We've talked about Sun Classics' use of audience concept testing when it came to the types of films they developed. 
The leading force behind this practice was Charles Selyer, who developed a near-fanatical reliance on this practice, and this carried over into decisions that were made for the Grizzly Adams series. However, what exactly is audience concept testing, and how did Sun implement this practice? Selyer was often vague about exactly what this entailed, but we have some clues from times he talked to interviewers over the years. Most Hollywood studios engage in some form of pre-release market research, such as test screenings for major releases where audience feedback can affect things like a film title, the final cut or edit of a film, and how a film is advertised or marketed to the public. Kevin Gotts of focus group company Screen Engine ASI states that most studios conduct anywhere from 1 to 10 of these test screenings for widely released films. Some films, and especially TV series concepts, are also sometimes tested with the public before they are put into development. This might be accomplished through the use of focus groups, being shown a pilot episode of a potential series. This might bring to mind when The Simpsons lampooned this practice in a Season 8 episode. All right, thanks for participating in our focus group, kids. Today, we're going to show you some itchy and scratchy cartoons. We want you to tell us what you think, and be honest, because no one from the show is here spying on you. <laughs> now, you each have a knob in front of you. When you like what you see, turn the knob to the right. When you don't like what you see, turn it left. My knob tastes funny. Please refrain from tasting the knob. When Selyer came on board in 1974, Sun began to analyze what audiences were seeing their films. I mentioned before how this affected their TV advertising strategies for Chariots of the Gods and similarly themed films. Turning their lens on Grizzly Adams theatrical moviegoers, they found that average ticket buyer to be a family man, aged 35 or older, without an advanced education, had two or three children under 14, an average income of $11,000 a year, watched a lot of television, and seldom took his family to the movies. Sun then began to spend tens of thousands of dollars to apply market research and concept testing as part of pre-production research that was done before a film concept proceeded to script and filming. Intent on reaching what they considered to be an underserved, fringe, movie-going audience, non-urban, working-class families that attended theaters perhaps once or twice a year, a demographic they figured represented some 75% of the U.S. population at the time. Sun would conduct multi-city surveys to gauge public interest in specific film topics or themes that would attract these viewers. Once a proposed film was chosen, further surveys were done to determine what specific approach to the film tested best with the potential audience. Only then would they proceed with actual production of said film, while adhering to a strict budget. Interestingly, around the time Sun was beginning to implement this type of market research, ABC, under new exec Fred Silverman, was doing the same thing, testing TV series concepts in door-to-door surveys in key TV markets across the country. The best-scoring descriptions would be designated by the researchers as high-concept, and only then would a concept proceed to the pilot script phase. One series that came directly out of ABC's concept testing was Charlie's Angels. 
Using their concept testing strategies, ABC was finally able to come out on top of the TV ratings for the 1976-77 TV season and proclaim their number one status in several memorable fall campaigns. Meanwhile, Sun sought to corral what Cellier referred to as the entire family unit to see their films. Sun's research was meticulous, and results were tabulated by computers. With the method Cellier was developing, he sought to find the best days of the week to book a given film, what towns or neighborhoods contain the highest number of potential ticket buyers for the specific film being booked there, what types of TV spots would bring those ticket buyers to the theater, and on what TV shows to run them on. The ads would almost always implement scarcity marketing, highlighting a film's limited engagement with one week only in the ad copy, often with a daily countdown, last weekend, last day, and so forth. However, said film would often be held over if successful, with arrangements made in advance with theaters if this was the case. At times, Sun would advertise the supposed final days of a film, already knowing it would be held over for the following week. This practice so irritated critics Siskel and Ebert that they eventually ranted about it on sneak previews, as well as in Siskel's Chicago Tribune column. What's despicable is the way the film company tries to pressure you to rush right out and see this movie with advertising campaigns that work like this. The first ad tells you the movie starts tomorrow for one week only. Mm -hmm. They run this ad on the day before it opens. Well, one week later, they run an ad proclaiming that this is the last day, your last chance to see this movie. But hold on, that's baloney, because in the very next day's paper, we see this ad. Look at this. Held over for one final week. Terrific. What do you know? It wasn't the last day. A little bit of a con game going on here, because the purchase order for this held over ad was placed at the very same time as the last day ad. By 1976, Sun claimed to be spending $1 million a year on their market research, about four times what major Hollywood studios were spending on theirs. In addition to the standard shopping mall surveys and telephone opinion polling, Sun would also conduct test screenings of film clips produced to gauge audience reactions toward films they might produce or scenes they might include in a film never revealing the proposed film title or studio name to the participants and telling them that the film had already been made. Sun subscribed to B.F. Skinner's Methodologies of Behavioral Science. Known for inventing the ominous-sounding operant conditioning chamber, otherwise known as the Skinner box, this was used to study animal behavior in a controlled environment, as well as the cumulative recorder, used to record behavioral responses from a subject on a roll of paper. If you're beginning to get a clockwork orange type vibes from all this, you're not far off. Sun once pursued Orson Welles to narrate a film. While an alleged quote from Welles would be touted in company PR that he was light years ahead of the rest of the industry, this may have been a mischaracterization of their discussion as told by Wells' cinematographer and longtime assistant, Gary Graver. Orson and I went to Sun Classics. They wanted him to do an animal picture. At the office, we saw trailers for their movies. Orson asked them how they knew what the audience wanted. They said, we go to this place, which is now the Harmony Gold Theater on Sunset, and we wire people's wrists when they're watching animal footage. 
We check the seismograph, and if they get excited, we make a picture about that. Orson just shook his head in disbelief. In later years, it was also revealed Sellier started incorporating a pseudo-religious theory called generational science into his audience testing methodologies. You can see Sellier do a three-hour presentation on this on YouTube. Sun's generational science was repackaged as Strauss-Howe generational theory in 1991, a millenarian concept that interprets Western, mainly U.S.-centric history through cyclical generational archetypes labeled prophet, nomad, hero, and artist. In true Sun fashion, generational theory is an unscientific, unprovable belief system couched in pseudo-scholarly terminology, which has found new popularity in some political circles. But even conventional pre-production market research can be flawed. Columbia Pictures notably turned down the option to produce Steven Spielberg's E.T. when their research indicated it would be of interest only to children. Likewise, the results of Sun's audience concept testing was uneven. The Grizzly Adams film was a hit before they started using it. And while they did score a major hit with Noah's Ark, at other times their methods clearly failed them, most notably with The Lincoln Conspiracy and The President Must Die. Director James Conway later admitted the shortcomings of this type of pre-production concept testing. Testing the docudrama ideas was a very effective way to gauge audience interest, but it didn't always work. As a test subject, The President Must Die was strong, but the movie failed. Testing became less effective as we moved into dramatic movies like Hangar 18 and The Boogans. So, what the testing results said audiences wanted didn't turn out to always be reliable, which again brings to mind the Itchy and Scratchy focus group results. Okay, how many of you kids would like Itchy and Scratchy to deal with real-life problems like the ones you face every day? And who would like to see them do just the opposite, getting into far-out situations involving robots and magic powers? So you want a realistic, down-to-earth show that's completely off the wall and swarming with magic robots? That's you should win things by watching. <sighs> but Selye's unwavering reliance on his concept testing resulted in some really odd choices and decisions. Which brings us back to the Grizzly Adams NBC series. Using the aforementioned methods, Selye would claim to have pre-tested most, if not all, elements we ended up seeing in the series. This resulted in a kind of shooting manual they would use to select settings, props, costumes, etc. for episodes. Cellier told columnist Jerry Buck during second season production that the shooting manual was key to episode filming. If a director is faced with making a fallback decision because of weather or illness, this helps him. It says this scene is a key scene. Get it, even if it takes an extra four hours. It says this other scene isn't as important, and if necessary, you can cut it short. This pre-testing supposedly extended to the very bear to be used for the series, as he told Don Freeman of TV Guide, from which the next several of these quotes originate. We tested a variety of bears, but our audience preferred the awesome grizzly, 
with the big claws and the silver-tipped look. They had no fear of the grizzly, because Grizzly Adams had no fear. Selye would go on to relate how the audience was delighted to see otters, chipmunks, beavers, and skunks. However, horses tested poorly. Instead of a horse, Mad Jack was thus given a burro to use as his pack animal, and we got old number seven. However, I'll note that the primary bear used for the series was the very one used in the feature film, which had decidedly not been selected by computers or audience research. When it came to Grizzly Adams' costume, this seemingly did evolve from film to series with the aid of Selye's prolific testing, as he pointed out regarding what Dan Haggerty had worn prior to the series in the Frontier Fremont film. At the end, we see Fremont from the back, staring at a burned forest. He turns around, and it's obvious that this man who has loved animals all throughout the picture is now wearing a bearskin coat. Audiences spotted it at once, and they hated it. So, while a prominent early promotional photo showed Dan Haggerty posed kneeling next to Bozo in a fur-trimmed animal skin coat, this was quickly dropped. For the series, instead of animal skins, Adams was shown only wearing natural fibers. A dark brown button-up shirt with torn short sleeves, suspenders, patchwork pants, and a wide-brim hat with hatband and single feather inserted into it. The single feather seems to be a callback to Frontier Fremont, where Denver Pyle's character gives Fremont a magic Indian feather to keep them giant eagles from chomping his head off. A white half-placket four-button shirt was added for season two, with a final version being seen in some episodes filmed post-burn injury, where he wore a Native American choker necklace and sash tied around a new, untucked, white, full-button, puffy-sleeved shirt. This, combined with newly grown and styled hair, gave Grizzly Adams a distinctive, almost spiritual look. This is particularly noticeable in the high-quality behind-the-scenes photos that can be found at Getty Images. Selye also determined that the Grizzly Adams audience dislikes animals being violent to humans and to other animals, and humans being violent to animals and other humans. They dislike hunting, either for sport or food. Grizzly can fish, but he doesn't hunt, and he doesn't eat meat. He's portrayed as one of the first vegetarians. Indeed, while Adams had a rifle, presumably as a last resort of protection, he was never seen using it. Thus, early episodes depicted Adams and Ben eating fish for dinner, at times unspecified forms of stew and jerky, as well as the seemingly endless flapjacks. Another thing Selye stated his testing decided were guest characters and guest stars. While this may have resulted in Grizzly Adams having its share of notable guest actors, Sun's data supposedly steered them away from including many female characters on the show. NBC has creative control of all scripts, so I went ahead against my own judgment and shot an episode we called Woman in the Wilderness. Then we put it through testing and got a sharply negative reaction. Our audience didn't want any women in the wilderness. I proved my point but it was expensive. We scrapped half the show, reshot the scenes involving the woman, and changed the emphasis to an Indian and a 12-year-old boy. 
An additional specific choice was to never depict snow on the series, except for holiday episodes, with the thinking that it reminded people of the drudgery of snow shoveling their driveways. Our audience likes waterfalls, pretty vistas, and high mountain ridges, preferably with actors and animals as a part of the scene. They dislike snow, except at Christmas. What they like is eternal summer in the primeval, womanless wilderness. This proclamation also serves as a fairly accurate assessment of most of Sun's wilderness films. And as a result of Selye's fervent testing, it should be of particular note that he concluded the series' target market was a so-called bimodal audience of young children and senior citizens. Thus, those were the age groups engaged for Grizzly Adams' research, and this was who episodes were designed to appeal to. Selye's clashes with NBC may have led them to think that continuing to deal with him for a third season would have been more trouble than it was worth, given the now lower ratings. The scripts that made it to filming didn't always please Dan Haggerty, who was making his displeasure known in the press after filming much of the second season. The scripts get comic book-like and have little depth. I want to see the show expand, but every time I make my ideas known to the producers, they just shine me on. Here you have a perfectly normal 35-year-old Grizzly Adams who never travels, doesn't meet women, or run into trappers or traders. Think of all the things they could bring into the stories. Indeed, Haggerty had written two scripts that were both rejected. And while wife Diane did sell a script to the producers, the story was rewritten and her name did not make it to the final credits. There was little he could do, for he was stuck, as he put it, in a seven-year contract. Also stating, You want to know something? The bear made more money than I did. And that's a fact. Decades later, Don Shanks added specifics and alleged there was more going on behind the production than NBC knew about. I was working for scale, and Dan was working for maybe $2,500 a week. And the producers on the show didn't want us to really know how popular it was, because they didn't want us to ask for more money. And they were running a scam, too. The episodes were budgeted at $700,000 each, but they were shooting them for like $150,000 to $200,000 an episode, and pocketing the difference. And there was also... $139 million of merchandising that we never received. The Bears of Grizzly Adams It's not difficult to understand that the popularity of Grizzly Adams was due in no small part to the animal actors regularly featured. The talents of several animal trainers were used during the series. Terry Rowland, Ken Beebe, Marinho Correa, Clint Rowe, Lee Sollenberger, Doug and Lynn Seuss, John Beers, and Gene M. Simpson. The series also benefited from the fact that the lead actor himself was also an experienced animal handler, familiar with bears, and even though he had prior bad experiences with handling bears, as we heard, found he had great chemistry with his grizzly co-star. For example, the scene at the beginning of Episode 7, Gold is Where You Find It where, after Ben awakened Adams by pulling the blanket off him, they chased each other through a meadow, fighting over his shirt, until finally Ben rolled over on his back in the grass, 
exposing his belly in a position of vulnerability. According to a TV Guide article, none of this had been staged. It spontaneously happened. Ben was in fact played by three different bears, all of which were female. The primary bear was Bozo, a female grizzly 11 years old at the time of the film and 13 when the TV show began filming. A grizzly named Rose was used for second unit filming, shown reacting to other animals and for long background shots. Bozo's daughter Hoko was the third unit bear. A fourth bear earned the name Rock Thrower after teaching himself to perform this activity, digging up rocks from the creek to throw at the electric fence. This talent was integrated into the show. However, none of the additional bears used for the series had the mild temperament of Bozo. Bears that doubled for her needed to have an electric fence boundary to protect the filming crew, while filming with Bozo did not require this. Trainer Terry Rowland said of Bozo, She'll stand, sit up, roll over, open her mouth, and dance. She'll even scratch on command. I bet she'll mind better than 99% of the dogs in Park City. Trained bears are predictable, if you know how to read the signs. Bears are just as temperamental as people. Bozo, though, has the best temperament I've ever seen. Most people think bears are slow and stupid, but they're not. They're like big cats. Bozo's gentle nature was unusual for a grizzly, the most dangerous species of bear you might come across in the wilds of North America. Bears featured on other productions that required regular interactions with humans, such as 1967's Gentle Ben, typically used black bears, which are said to be more docile when compared to grizzlies. However, all wild bears are quite dangerous to humans, should they confront you. Bozo's exact origins and age were a little fuzzy, as you'll find several contradictory details about her published in later newspaper articles, books, and on various websites. Thanks to older newspapers that have now been archived online, I found that she was born in February 1963 and had been raised from infancy at the Sunset Zoo in Manhattan, Kansas. Local couple Mr. and Mrs. Robert Leonard came into possession of her when she was a six-month-old cub. She made her public debut in the Leonard's Traveling Animal Act, performing at the Sports Center of Wichita, Kansas, in May of 1964, when she was 15 months old. Leonard, a former zoo director, had trained bears before, but never a grizzly, so he considered it a personal challenge, as he told the Wichita Eagle, in 1966. We knew the grizzly was considered one of the most dangerous bears and was thought to be untrainable. This alone offered me a challenge. If I could successfully train a grizzly, I would accomplish a feat no other animal trainer had. So when I found this female grizzly, I took a chance. Bozo would also appear in the Leonard's Bear Act in the Shrine Circus and at Deer Forest Fun Park a storybook-themed petting zoo in Coloma, Michigan. This led to Bozo making her motion picture debut when she was made available to Paramount Pictures to appear in the 1966 film, The Night of the Grizzly. Big Jim Cole, a man whose roots go deep into the earth. A man building a dream with two bare hands. A dream that exploded into nightmare on a night filled with a thousand terrors. 
the night of the grizzly. At the time, she was believed to be the only trained grizzly in the U.S. Not long after, she was obtained by Lloyd Beebe of Olympic Game Farm in Sequim, Washington. Olympic Game Farm raised and housed some 220 animals made available for film and TV work and had provided animals for Disney nature films for some 28 years. Owner Lloyd Beebe was also a wildlife photographer used on many Disney films. Lloyd's son Ken Beebe and Terry Rowland continued to train Bozo, who was used for the 1974 Grizzly Adams film. One day, Charles Sellier came calling, requesting Bozo to return for a television series he was going to be producing for NBC. However, involvement on the series would entail sending a five- to six-man crew to Utah and setting up a compound for the Bears. OGF's commitment to working a Disney film made this difficult, but when Sellier offered more money, they made the needed accommodations to commit to the Grizzly Adams series. 30 acres of land were purchased in Woodland, Utah to set up a satellite location for OGF. Ahead of season filming, Bozo, Hoko, Rose, and other bears were transported by truck in trailer cages to the Utah location. They could have been transported by air, but the airlines required them to be tranquilized, which Terry Rowland refused to do. Rowland was Bozo's primary handler for the first season, with Ken Beebe taking over for the second, assisted by Moreno Correa. Over the course of the first season, Bozo put on over 100 pounds due to the treats of marshmallows, hot dogs, and jelly sandwiches she was rewarded with after performing in action. Said Ken Beebe, We went through a lot of marshmallows. People in the store looked at me kind of strange when I bought several cases every week. Photographer Glenn Steiner recalls being sent to photograph Bozo for a 1977 magazine shoot when he was starting off his career. I climbed into the cage with the trainer Kenny, who had a package of marshmallows with him. I got a shot of the bear taking one from Kenny, and he asked me if I wanted to get into the act. Sure, I was 27 and quite invulnerable. For Kenny to shoot this, I had to kneel. In retrospect, this now sounds like the right position for the doomed. Bozo took the bait. Immediately afterwards, Bozo, in all her 600-pound loveliness, looked me in the eye and then reached down with her paw and pinned me down. I remember the claws on my thigh and her great weight. Think of a butterfly and a giant pin. Then she gently reached over with the other paw and removed the bag of marshmallows from my hand and walked over to the other side of the cage to finish her snack. But she didn't just work for treats. Bozo earned $3,500 a week filming episodes of Grizzly Adams. Another bear that made one of his first acting appearances as a cub was Bart, owned by Doug and Lynn Seuss of Heber City, Utah. Bart grew to be of enormous size and went on to appear in dozens of films and TV productions, such as The Journey of Natty Gann, The Bear, The Great Outdoors, Legends of the Fall, and a memorable turn on 1997's The Edge with Anthony Hopkins. You might recall Bart presenting an Oscar envelope to a nervous Mike Myers in 1998. Ladies and gentlemen, the star of 11 motion pictures, including Clan of the Cave Bear, 
Legends of the Fall, and most recently, The Edge, Bart the Bear. Doug and Lynn Seuss operate Wasatch Rocky Mountain Wildlife and still provide animals for film and TV, and establish the nonprofit Vital Ground Foundation to conserve habitat for grizzly bear populations. During filming of Season 1 episode, The Redemption of Ben, Clint Rowe brought three raccoons for Haggerty's stuntman to work with during the rock slide scene. When the oldest of the three became difficult to handle, Rowe substituted a younger coon. Putting a raccoon in a snare might be the simplest thing in the world, or it may be the hardest. The animals draw their own lines. And if you push them, either they or an actor gets hurt. Performing periodic inspections of filming locations in Arizona was Dale Dunning, cruelty investigator for the Arizona Humane Society. The Grizzly Adams production received good reports following his visits. As we've seen, spontaneous activities of the animals were filmed, which were shot and kept as file footage to be worked into episodes. Thus, viewers did get a flavor of some genuine animal antics, but one aspect shown in the show was faked. Most, if not all, of the grunts and growls where Ben talks to Adams were added in post-production and were slowed down vocalizations by Foley and sound designer Dale Angel. And now I'm going to pretend to be a bear. Now when Ben would get inquisitive, he would go, I'm going to slow it down. And we should hear a bear. Sounds from the other animals were replaced or added in post as well. The chatter of the raccoons was really that of spider monkeys. Dale Angel originally had inserted the sounds of actual raccoons, but this was met with disapproval by Charles Sellier, as he thought the sounds uttered were wrong for the show. When the spider monkey chirps were laid in, Sellier said, Now that's what a raccoon would sound like if he had a choice. Which made about as much sense as many of Sellier's proclamations. Raising a barn is really rewarding work, but it sure makes me thirsty. So I head straight for this, new and improved Nest Tea. Nest Tea's as natural as all outdoors. Because now Nest Tea slow brews its tea just like the sun does, for clear, fresh brewed taste and color. If you're looking for natural, sunny tasting iced tea, oh, you just found it. New slow brewed Nest Tea. There's nothing like it under the sun. The music of Grizzly Adams. One factor as intrinsically linked with Grizzly Adams as much as Ben the Bear or Dan Haggerty's beard was the music and songs contributed by Tom Pace. Born in Boise, Idaho, Pace began studying music when he first took piano lessons at age seven. His first musical goal was to become a concert pianist. 
By his sophomore year in high school, he had formed his first band, The Dimensions. By the mid-70s, he had partnered with Dave Hegstead for his piano lounge duo, Tom and Dave, playing venues across the upper Midwest. When Tom and Dave were performing in Salt Lake City, Pace's manager, having an inside contact at Sun Classic, got him tasked with writing a song to accompany the Grizzly Adams film. Pace delivered Wear the Sun in Your Heart, about a man leaving everything behind to start a new life. Sun Classic liked it enough that they not only accepted it as the theme for the opening credits, but asked him to write music for another film with the working title, Snow Tigers. He was paid $5,000 and given an entire week to finish. In his hotel room, Pace churned out a song about living free in the wilderness in about 20 minutes. While producers Joseph and Stuart Raffle chose to go in another direction with the music for what became Sun's When the North Wind Blows, Charles Sellier heard the song and thought it perfect to add to the closing credits of Grizzly Adams. Thus, Maybe was used for the film, leaving viewers with a tender-hearted, almost bittersweet ending. Sun offered Pace $250 for the copyright to the song, which he wisely declined. Tom and Dave performed the Grizzly Adams medley at their live shows for a couple of years. For 1975's The Adventures of Frontier Fremont, Sun hired music producer Don Perry who had worked with their music editor Sharon Miller on an ABC TV movie, where he faced an issue finding non-union musicians per Son and Selye's policy. After he brought on some session players, Selye was not pleased with the initial guitar and banjo country bluegrass theme they had come up with. Working with composer Bob Summers, the score was completely reworked, dumping the guitar, brass, and percussion and giving each animal a musical theme with a different reed instrument. Bob Summers was a multi-talented musician who had virtually grown up in the music business, never having to take a lesson. Right out of high school, he started working with talent that would chart, arranging and producing for Larry Hall, the Osmonds, the Beach Boys. His studio, The Sound House, would work with many more names that have fallen by the wayside in modern times. In the late 60s, he worked on the music for several teenage exploitation films, Teenage Rebellion, Mary Jane, The Born Losers, and Roger Corman's The Wild Racers. Don Perry and Bob Summers continued to work with Sun on Guardian of the Wilderness and other films. When it came time to produce the music to score the initial episodes of the Grizzly Adams series, Perry served as music supervisor and Summers as a composer. The first six edited episodes were dropped in their lap one week before they needed to be delivered to NBC at 8 a.m. on Monday, February 7th. Fully scored, sound mixed, 
and ready to air. Perry and Summers worked frantically to pack what normally would have been six weeks of work into one. Fortunately, the perfect opening theme had already been produced, as Don Perry points out in his 2016 book. When we spotted the first episodes of the series for music, maybe felt right as the main theme. We didn't know how fortunate we were that it didn't end up in the Tigers film. Maybe was used at the beginning and end of each episode, making an emotional connection to the viewer and forever linking it to Grizzly Adams. Quite a few scenes from the edited episodes were cut specifically for music to be added, and Tom Pace was brought back to track vocals, providing a sense of musical continuity for the show. Pace's song, Friends, was integrated into the premiere, and he wrote original songs for about a dozen episodes of the series overall. Since Pace had kept the copyright for Maybe, he would receive royalties for the seemingly endless times it would play in TV reruns. While sharp-eyed viewers watching the credits might know a gentleman named Tom Pace sang the song, it was identified only as the theme from Grizzly Adams in the show credits. NBC would receive calls and letters asking about the show's theme after each airing. Viewers wrote newspaper columns asking what it was called and where they could buy it. Don Perry related the impact of the show's maybe theme in recent YouTube comments. We received thousands of requests for the theme when the show ran, but could not get it released because of contract problems with the production company. Yes, sitting on this untapped revenue stream, a lunch meeting with Charles Sellier and Son attorneys was set up. Since the songs were tailored to accompany corresponding scenes and not cut and timed like a commercial release, it was thought they would work well sold in a soundtrack album. Perry suggested a piggyback agreement on Sun's 7-Eleven deal. They had to distribute the tie-in books for The Lincoln Conspiracy, which sold over a million copies. However, Sun would agree to no royalty deal for a soundtrack album, and the meeting was over. Perry continues, When the show went off the air here, it became a hit in Europe, and we went into the studio and cut a commercial release of Maybe. It was an immediate hit in Europe, starting in England and spreading. In Germany alone, it sold 800,000 plus, was on the chart for six months, and was record of the year. All told, Maybe sold close to 3 million singles worldwide. Indeed. Pace was mobbed by fans when he traveled in Europe, with even customs agents asking for his autograph. The Maybe single was integrated into a full Tom Pace album containing nine other songs, many with a light disco beat, and featured the bearded Pace on the cover with brown, wavy, shoulder-length hair and a Native American choker necklace. Capitol Records distributed this album in the U.S., but the failure of anyone on the U.S. side to identify, maybe, as the theme from Grizzly Adams came back to bite them. As Perry points out, No one in the U.S. knew the name of the theme, and no one knew who Tom Pace was. As a result, a song and artist who had sold millions of records worldwide was mainly ignored by program directors at radio stations here in the U.S., 
a wasted opportunity for Tom and Capitol Records. In spite of that, I remain proud of the quality of the album and my association with Tom. We not only worked together over the years on film projects, but became great friends. However, a soundtrack album for Grizzly Adams was released in Germany, titled Der Mann in den Bergen, or The Man in the Mountains, which featured 15 selections of music from the series, and additionally credits songwriter Penny Askey with writing and arrangement. Tom Pace worked on an additional film, writing and performing songs for the 1984 cult hit Night of the Comet, working again with Bob Summers, as well as the 1986 NBC TV movie Can You Feel Me Dancing with Justine and Jason Bateman. However, unsatisfied with Hollywood, he took a break and moved to Hawaii, running his own helicopter tour company for a couple of years. He returned to the music scene in 1989 with the second album, Pace Yourself. But, like the Maybe album, he was less than satisfied with the overall production. Moving back to Idaho with his girlfriend, Pace piloted helicopter rides at the Silverwood theme park for three years. Continuing to write, record, and produce music in his basement studio, in 2002, he released Not In Compliance on CD format. The album mixed the old with the new, including a Wear the Sun in Your Heart, Maybe Medley, and an opening track that served as a rant against political correctness. Now producing his music himself, he says, I get satisfaction from music. It gets my feelings out more than anything else. And now, I don't have to answer to any record companies. The Grizzly Adams Revival Attempts Even though there were only 37 episodes, far short of the count that usually attracts syndication buyers, the series immediately began being advertised in trade magazines by Viacom for syndication in 1979. For two years on NBC, more than 26 million weekly primetime viewers have watched Grizzly Adams and his bear Ben encounter perils and adventure as they roam a vast and spectacularly beautiful wilderness. Both have hearts as big as the mountains they roam, and so their adventures are touched with warmth and an uncommon love for all living things. Their frequent companions, Mad Jack the Trapper and Nakoma the Indian, are cast in the same mold. With such content and characterization, it's not surprising that this splendid family series receives TVQ popularity scores among the demographic groups 10 to 30 points higher than average scores for primetime programming. Now, the life and times of Grizzly Adams, filmed entirely on location in the mountains of Utah and Arizona, is available for September 1979. There are 35 hours and two two-hour specials, Once Upon a Starry Night and The Renewal, ideally suited for Christmas and Easter broadcasts. Call for this proven all-family favorite. 47 stations snapped up Grizzly Adams as soon as it was available. The series went on to impact millions of viewers, some of whom still wrote the show in care of NBC, the network the series used to air on. Don Shanks later related, 
Dan was over at NBC one time, after the show had been over for I don't know how long. And this lady there goes, you want your fan mail? And he goes, you have fan mail? She said, yeah, have you got a truck? He goes, yeah, I got a pickup. She says, no, do you have an actual truck? There were eight million fan mails that we didn't get. The series was rerun on local stations for the next 15 years, not only domestically, but also in Australia, Brazil, Canada, Croatia, Finland, France, Germany, India, Italy, the Netherlands, Norway, Poland, Serbia, South Africa, Spain, and the UK. Back in the States, it was picked up by cable network FX when that network debuted in 1994. So answer the call of the wild with Swiss Family Robinson, Okamongo, and Grizzly Adams on Tame Television, weekend starting at 9 on FX. In recent years, the show has aired on Nostalgia Network, Get TV. As covered in the last podcast, Sun, under new owner Taft Broadcasting, concluded the Grizzly Adams story with... The Capture of Grizzly Adams, airing on NBC February 21, 1982. The 1974 film was released on VHS for $14.95 in 1986, and since then has been issued several times. As pointed out during the episode review, a few episodes also saw VHS releases in the 1980s. The Capture NBC Telefilm presented an open-ended conclusion to the Grizzly Adams story, leaving the storytelling door open should the property be revived. However, the possibility of star Dan Haggerty returning to the role was made highly problematic due to legal troubles he became involved in. Dan Haggerty's troubles began to be evident even during the original run of the series when the actor had trouble keeping his focus, requiring numerous takes to get through a scene. He later admitted to having a cocaine habit starting in 1972, which he says wasn't good for him or his career. When he was pulled over in November 1978, CHP officers had clocked his Ferrari doing 100 miles per hour. At the stop, officers stated they spotted a vial of white powder in the car which the inebriated Haggerty then threw into the brush on the side of the highway. This led to a scuffle with the officers, and Haggerty was arrested. Haggerty was fined $600 and ordered to do 100 hours of community service. For the next few years, Haggerty seemed to stay out of trouble, ironically guesting on Chips, as well as Charlie's Angels and The Love Boat. But in June 1984, the 42-year-old actor was again arrested at his Beverly Hills home at the conclusion of a two-month investigation by the newly formed Entertainment Unit of the Narcotics Division of the LAPD. Accused of selling an undercover officer a total of 18 grams of cocaine, he was released on bail and went to trial over the charges the following year and was convicted. He was sentenced to 90 days in jail, three years probation, 200 hours of community service, and ordered to undergo rehabilitation and repeated narcotics testing. Also in the summer of 1985, there started to be attempts to revive the Grizzly Adams brand. With Dan Haggerty just having served his jail sentence and now on probation, 
Stuntman Gene Edwards, who had doubled for Haggerty on the series, began to appear as the character at local events, along with Don Shanks as Nakoma, to promote interest in a series revival. Gene Edwards was from northeastern Wisconsin, and with his bounteous hair and beard and even a faint resemblance to Haggerty, definitely had the burly frontiersman look down pat. Even though he had done stunt work for shows like The Dukes of Hazard, Chips, and The Fall Guy, Edwards admitted to the press in 1982, My look is a distinct look. I can't go on just any type of casting call. I can't play a lot of parts. I've got the beard, and I'm confined to a Viking, a mountain man, some drunk, or a heavy. It is unclear if the initial attempts for a return of a Grizzly Adams series involved Taft Entertainment or Charles Sellier. By now, Sellier had abandoned the family-friendly and religious films he had made with Sun and was signing deals to direct R-rated fare for New World Pictures, such as The Annihilators, released November 1985. However, his deal with New World seemed to fizzle out and he began producing a string of Western TV movies for the remainder of the 1980s. Meanwhile, Edwards and Shanks appeared numerous times in the late 80s to promote Grizzly Adams' revival projects. Edwards formed Grizzly Productions in an attempt to partner with a studio for distribution of a film or TV series starring himself as the character. In 1986, the pair was to film Grizzly and Grey Otter's Wilderness Adventure, a movie originally intended to be released late that year. Notably, Shanks would no longer be playing Nakoma, but a new character named Grey Otter, presumably because the Nakoma character belonged to Taft's son. And by this time, it is clear they were not involved in this effort. Also known under alternate working titles, such as Grizzly Adams' Wilderness Adventure and The Legend of Grizzly Adams. The film was to be narrated by John Denver, star Clint Walker, and former Oakland Raider quarterback Ken Stabler, in addition to Edwards and Shanks, and have music by John Denver and Mickey Gilly. Edwards, Shanks, and Gilly appeared at the 1987 Show West convention to drum up interest in the film. Reportedly, Edwards had verbal interest from studios with deals to produce a new Grizzly Adams series as well, likely to take advantage of the late 80s boom in first-run syndication. Edwards and Shanks also appeared at France's Cannes Film Festival in May 1987 to promote said film, by which time B-movie distributor Shapiro Entertainment had become attached to the project. They were in costume alongside a black bear wearing a Grizzly Adams t-shirt. Edwards reported high interest in the foreign market, as well as a planned wide domestic release for the 1987 end-of-year holiday season. The final mention I find of this film is from late July, where Edwards cited production delays due to him both directing and starring in the feature. Sadly, this production never saw the light of day and I find no evidence the film was ever finished. About two years later, another Grizzly Adams project was in the works, this time produced by Florida-based author Thomas L. Tidrow under new production company Bulls on the Run Production. 
Shot at Old Tucson Studios in Arizona in May of 1989, the production would feature the return of Bozo the Bear, this time called Martha. If successful, the plan was for a trilogy of films, the second of which was intended to be a rather unique concept. Misha, the lost son of Grizzly Adams, was to depict a Russian-American take on the story, with Adams marrying a Russian sea captain's daughter that had settled in California, only to have her whisked back to Russia by her unpleased father. Twenty-five years later, son Misha would come to the U.S. in search of his legendary father. The planned sequel, which was to be a co-production between Bulls on the Run and Paritiat Films of Moscow, fell apart when Thomas Tidro was accused of stealing the Misha character and was subsequently sued by his Russian production partners. These troubles may have made it difficult to secure theatrical distribution for the produced film, which debuted in Canada with little fanfare on rental-priced home video in the spring of 1991, then on U.S. cable TV as Grizzly Adams, The Legend Continues. The film begins by retelling the real story of the historical Grizzly Adams, finally merging into a fictionalized version similar to the NBC show. The plot, such that it was, has Adams come down out of the mountains to escort a group of settlers on their way out west to Tucson. However, the wagon train is carrying a hidden cache of gold and is being pursued by a trio of inept criminals. The film was tonally completely different than what was presented to viewers on the NBC series. The most interesting thing about the movie is that it was the last appearance of Aquanetta, Billed in the 1940s as the Venezuelan Volcano in jungle pictures such as Jungle Woman and Tarzan and the Leopard Woman. But here, the character of Grizzly Adams was wedged into a family comedy western that had nothing to do with him. And Gene Edwards showed himself to be no Dan Haggerty in this low-budget effort shot on video. Gene Edwards continued to appear as the Grizzly Adams character through at least 1993 at local events such as grand openings and bookstores to promote Thomas Tidrow's children's book, The Legend of Grizzly Adams and Kodiak Jack. In 1993, Edwards was still hopeful of a television series revival of Grizzly Adams. But other than a mention of him appearing on local cable TV in Green Bay, Wisconsin, Gene Edwards returned to using his original name and faded from the public eye. Born Eugene Jashinsky from Pound, Wisconsin, Edwards appeared as Grizzly Adams often enough that facts concerning him and Dan Haggerty are sometimes conflated. This is why you'll find some references to Haggerty being born in Pound, Wisconsin and not Los Angeles. Meanwhile, Dan Haggerty was making a return to acting. After a string of appearances in direct-to-video films, Haggerty returned to familiar ground in 1991's Spirit of the Eagle, appearing as Big Eli McDonough, a mid-19th century cartographer traveling through the forests of America's Northwest Territories, who had a special kind of way with animals, including a giant golden eagle he had raised. Don Shanks makes a special appearance in the VHS-released film, marking both the first and last time 
Haggerty and Shanks would appear together after the Grizzly Adams series had ended 12 years earlier. Eagle was filmed in the early summer of 1990, and news articles reported Haggerty was slated to begin filming a 26-episode Grizzly Adams revival series that year. This clearly never happened, and I could find no further information on this effort at a series revival. However, Haggerty returned as Grizzly Adams, in spirit, if not technically as the character. 1995's Grizzly Mountain was a fantasy family adventure film, featuring Haggerty as mountain man Jeremiah, whose friends included Black Bear Jack and Golden Eagle Thor. Jeremiah's 19th century wilderness was accessible through a time portal in a magic cave. Just go with it. It was supposed to be a relaxing family vacation. Can we go exploring? Well, all right, but don't be gone too long. But for Dylan and Nicole... I think I see a cave or something. It turned into a trip that took them back in time. Wow. Whoa, kids. Where's the fire? Where are we? Now, with the help of some new friends... I'll do everything I can to get you back to your parents. They've got to save the mountain. No! Oh, no! Before it's too late. Grizzly Adams, Dan Haggerty. These guys are as dangerous as they are dumb. That mountain is ready to blow! And the Karate Kids, Martin Cove, star in this heartwarming family adventure that takes you to a place where dreams come true. Grizzly Mountain. Grizzly Mountain was filmed at locations around Grants Pass and Eugene, Oregon, in the early fall of 1994. Haggerty's 11-year-old son, Dylan, and 9-year-old daughter, Megan, made their acting debuts in this sell-through-priced, direct-to-video feature. Jeremiah returned once more in the 1999 sequel, Escape to Grizzly Mountain, this time featuring a now 13-year-old Miko Hughes, who had been seen in Pet Cemetery and Kindergarten Cop as Jimmy, a boy who enlists Jeremiah's help to save a bear cub being mistreated at a sketchy circus. Jack was now a monstrous Kodiak grizzly and no longer a black bear. The film had a well-meaning message and rather predictable ending, but it was somewhat disconcerting to see Haggerty as Jeremiah rave over a McDonald's Big Mac in what was an obvious product placement. It was released to Canadian television in 2000, then on DVD in the U.S. in 2002. An additional attempt at a Grizzly Adams film was made in the mid-90s in Grizzly Adams and the Legend of Dark Mountain, featuring Tom Tabak, the nephew of actor Vic Tabak. Originally titled Grizzly Adams' Treasure of the Bear, the movie was filmed in 1995 and featured recognizable names such as Joseph Campanella, Mickey Jones, and Marilyn McCoo in the cast. It was produced and directed in part by David Sheldon, known for Grizzly, Day of the Animals, and Grizzly 2, Revenge. While it was an attempt to go back to the original Grizzly Adams story and not base its interpretation on what Sun Classic had done, it failed to capture an audience, and the two versions were sold into international TV syndication. In 2012, Shout Factory began releasing the seasons 
of The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams on DVD, culminating in a complete series release in 2016, followed by the recent DVD release of The Capture of Grizzly Adams. Incredibly, the original 1974 film has still never been released to DVD. What became of the people connected to the series? As Dan Haggerty continued to act, he also began to take advantage of his celebrity status. Opening the restaurant Haggerty's Bistro in Studio City, California in 1991, as well as marketing his own brand of barbecue sauce. However, that same year, he also suffered yet another personal injury in a motorcycle crash when his Harley slid under a van. Haggerty suffered a broken pelvis, crushed leg, and a head injury that required 200 stitches and put him in a coma. Over the next several years, he underwent 18 surgeries. Tragically, his second wife, Samantha, was in a motorcycle crash in 2008, which ended her life. In later years, Haggerty promoted a number of products from hot tubs to cleaning products to log cabins. But in late 2015, a back surgery led to the discovery of spinal cancer. Following a brief battle with the disease, the man that will be forever remembered as Grizzly Adams passed away in January of 2016 at the age of 73. Stuart Raffle, who had partnered with Dan Haggerty early on, influencing Haggerty's career, veered away from animal handling to focus on filmmaking. Following When the North Wind Blows, he wrote and directed The Adventures of the Wilderness Family, leading to two sequels and the similarly themed Across the Great Divide. His 80s and 90s work is a list of very familiar films. The Philadelphia Experiment, The Ice Pirates, Mac and Me, Mannequin 2 on the Move, Passenger 57, and cult video hit Tammy and the T-Rex. Don Shanks continued to work as an actor and stuntman, and like many stuntmen, has collected his share of injuries. Just a few years ago, he revealed to website Halloween Movies an early injury on Grizzly Adams in a mishap during filming of second season episode, The Search. Dan once cut off two of my fingers when we were doing a scene. Paul Brenniger played a trapper in it, and Denver Pyle gets caught in a net, and Dan and I are cutting him out, and Dan cut off two of my fingers with his knife. It was my first index finger at the first knuckle, and the middle finger at the second joint. I went and had them sewn back on, and I went back to work. I've never missed a day of work. I've had my back broken before, and I came back to work. Shanks went on to appear in several westerns and horror productions for film and TV, including the 1988 series Werewolf, 1984's Silent Night, Deadly Night, and the 1994 miniseries The Stand. However, it was his turn behind the mask as the titular character in 1989's Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers that cemented his place in the world of horror, and in which co-star Donald Pleasance broke his nose, but that is another story. Leading to more sinister roles on films, Urban Legends, Bloody Mary, and I'll Always Know What You Did Last Summer. 
He also is kept busy and in shape, managing stunts for about 40 films over the last 25 years, and in recent years has been seen on the horror convention circuit. He was just seen in the 2021 horror film Paranormal Prison, available on online platforms. Now 72, the actor says, I'm still riding horses. I have one friend and she's been doing horse rescues and stuff, and so I help her train the horses. You know, just taking it easy. Denver Pyle went from the mountains of Utah to rural Georgia immediately following Grizzly Adams' cancellation when he was cast as Uncle Jesse on CBS hit series The Dukes of Hazard, a role he played for the entirety of its seven-season run. He also appeared in the 1986 TV movie Return to Mayberry, reprising his role of the jug-playing Briscoe Darling. He received his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 1997, just two weeks before his death from lung cancer on Christmas Day of that year. He was 77. Gene Edwards, after returning to his home state of Wisconsin, was in long-term rehabilitation, resulting from injuries suffered from years of stunt acting, according to those who knew him. At one point, he was working on a comeback, when he had sufficiently regained his health. Unfortunately, his health continued to decline until his death at age 69 in December of 2016, the same year Dan Haggerty also passed away. Following the Grizzly Adams series, Bozo the Bear gave birth to two more cubs, Samantha and Big Mac, in 1984. Following the 1991 Gene Edwards movie, she faded from the public eye. While you'll find a reference to a bear named Ben that died at Nebraska's Folsom Children's Zoo in 1990, incorrectly reported in an AP article to be the bear from Grizzly Adams, this was a Kodiak brown bear and clearly was not Bozo. Bozo lived until she was 36 years old, passing away in 1999. She was buried near a grove of old-growth fir trees on a hill at Olympic Game Farm, alongside other animals the BBs had cared for over the decades. Post-Grizzly Adams, Charles Sellier continued to write and produce for film and TV, as well as a few directorial efforts, one of which stirred controversy. While Sun Classic under Taft Broadcasting continued to veer away from their wholesome image with films like 1983's Cujo, Cellier jumped into directing for mainstream studios. However, the first of these efforts, 1984's Silent Night, Deadly Night for TriStar Pictures, which presented a murderous teenager dressed as Santa Claus, surprised some and outraged others. The night before Christmas, when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. Remember, he only looks like Santa Claus. You've made it through Halloween. Now try and survive Christmas, Silent Night, Deadly Night, Rated R. Starts Friday at a theater near you. Filmed in Heber City and Midway, Utah, for a budget of $750,000, the production used local actors and crew, including lead actor Robert Brian Wilson 
and stuntman Don Shanks, and originally had the title Sleigh Ride. Recently formed TriStar Pictures was pleased with the completed film and intended to target a 17- to 24-year-old demographic based on test screenings. While 400 film prints were produced for a November 9th wide release, the studio had issues with MPAA approval for the TV spots, and six versions were edited before one was finally given the green light. TV commercials began running two weeks prior to release date, and the controversy began. TriStar representatives state they had instructed the ad agency making the commercial buys to run the spots late at night. New York-based Diner Hauser Bates disputed this, claiming they were given no such direction. Thus, TV spots for the film ran during a Green Bay Packers football game in the afternoon and early evening, not to mention on episodes of Three's Company and Little House on the Prairie, triggering viewer outrage which flowed over to complaints over newspaper print ads as well. Entire pages in newspaper entertainment sections were filled with reviews and columns analyzing the controversy, which sometimes even made the front page. Gene Siskel called the film contemptible and specifically called out producer Ira Barmack. On November 8th, TriStar pulled the TV ads and Barmack went on a PR campaign on shows like Donahue and Entertainment Tonight to respond to criticism and do damage control for the studio. Even though the film still performed somewhat decently given its budget and pulled advertising, the controversy and angry parents picketing theaters caused TriStar, likely in no small part at the prompting of parent company Coca-Cola, to pull the film from distribution after less than two weeks. Cellier seemed to remain silent on the controversy, and the film was brought back the following summer by a different distributor with a new advertising campaign that played up the controversy, this time careful to run TV ads only after 9 p.m. The film became something of a cult hit and spawned four sequels. Cellier next tackled a PG-rated take on the teen sex comedy category, producing and directing the campy Snowballing in 1984, with a script penned by Thomas Chapman and David O'Malley. I can't find evidence of a theatrical release for this film, and it was probably released only on home video. This was followed by the actioner The Annihilators for New World Pictures in 1985 which was his final directorial effort. Forming his own production company, he brought several TV movies and specials to the small screen, including the Desperado series of Western telefilms for NBC, 1988's Long Arm, 1991's Knight Rider 2000, as well as Mysteries of the Ancient World, Ancient Secrets of the Bible, and similar specials for CBS. In 1995, writing a new wave of interest in the paranormal spurred by The X-Files, Cellier hosted The UFO Diaries, distributed in syndication, as well as Encounters with the Unexplained, airing on PAX TV. He then veered entirely into content aimed at the politically conservative, faith-based, direct-to-video market, much of it produced with former Sun cohort David Balsiger.
Selyer was also known locally in Utah for his philanthropy. Taking some of the profits from his many films and TV shows, he invested them in public services for Park City and Wasatch and Summit counties, where so much of Sun's catalog had been filmed. His donations paid for an ambulance, emergency medical equipment, training, a new dispatch system, three vehicles for the sheriff's department, bulletproof vests for the highway patrol, and a Theocall snowcat for rescue services. In Park City, schools received new bike racks, a gym floor, and textbooks. Selyer also volunteered 40 hours a month, working as a reserve deputy for Wasatch County, patrolling in a vehicle he also donated. On January 31, 2011, Charles Selyer Jr., the man NBC's Paul Klein called a brilliant and amazing innovator, died unexpectedly in his Idaho home at age 67. A cause of death was never released. Upon his death, the Grizzly Adams brand entered trademark protection with Grizzly Adams LLC, a company run by Selye's associates, Todd and Julie Swindell, who managed the rights going forward for any new Grizzly Adams film and television offerings. Although the Grizzly Adams series is now over 45 years old, America's favorite mountain man has continued to live on in popular culture. Saturday Night Live started lampooning the show early on, referencing Dan Haggerty's birthday party mishap in a December 1977 cold open. Grizzly Adams sets fire to his head, will not be seen this week, so that NBC may present the following special program. Endless references have been made since on everything from The Tonight Show to The Late Show with David Letterman and sitcoms like Seinfeld and The Big Bang Theory. A 2002 episode of Family Guy satirized the characters of Grizzly Adams and Ben, presenting them as a domestic couple living in a log cabin. And now back to the life and times of Grizzly Adams. Um, Grizzly? Who's Steve? What? Oh, there's a message on the machine from somebody named Steve. Oh, yeah, Steve. Uh, he's uh, new to the mountain. I met him down at the general store. He makes canoes. Oh. How come I've never met him? Mm, he hasn't really been here that long. Long enough to get your number! Ben! Ben! Damn it. But probably nothing matches the reference in 1996's Happy Gilmore when arrogant pro golfer Shooter McGavin mentions the mountain man and receives a comeback by none other than all-time great Lee Trevino. Yeah, right. Grizzly Adams had a beard. Grizzly Adams did have a beard. The line has taken on a life of its own as internet hashtags and memes shared on social media. While the plots were sometimes mighty thin, critics often poked fun at the show and the very concept that a man could talk to and interact with completely wild animals pushed the series into the realm of fantasy. There was a magic captured in Grizzly Adams' one and a half seasons. The series was so overwhelmingly wholesome and the locations so obviously real that it was a joy to watch. When the Tom Pace music swelled to indicate the end of another Grizzly Adams story, it's quite easy to well up in tears as the camera pulls back, showing Grizzly Adams, Nakoma, and Mad Jack 
really were legitimately in the wilderness, in a field, or near a panoramic ridge with the Uinta Mountains of Utah, or the Sierra Blanca Mountains of New Mexico in the background. It's no wonder many today have the fantasy of saying goodbye to civilization and finding their own corner of the woods to call their own, much like the original Grizzly Adams did. Yes, America's original mountain man is still remembered, and his influence will live on. In closing, I'll relate the words found on Adam's tombstone. And silent now the hunter lays, sleep on, brave tenant of the wild. Great nature owns her simple child, and nature's God to whom alone the secret of the heart is known. In silence whispers that his work is done. Take me Next time on Forgotten TV. A Forgotten TV special presentation. A look at Dr. Albert Burke, a now virtually forgotten Yale academic, prominent television host, and presidential advisor that pioneered educational television on NBC before PBS even existed. This fascinating show will contain never-before-heard facts about the history of this individual who had one of the longest-running educational TV shows in syndication before he vanished from the public eye. Don't miss Forgotten TV's probe into the life of Albert Burke. Then they arrived in 50 motherships, offering their friendship and advanced technology to Earth. Skeptical of the visitors, Mike Donovan and Juliet Parrish infiltrated their ranks and soon discovered some startling secrets. Resistance is all that stands between us and the visitors. The battle has been won, but the war is about to begin. The visitors return, and nothing's gonna stop them. It was an NBC miniseries that shocked America with an incredible 40 share of the viewing audience a phenomenon that took the mid-80s by storm that spawned a miniseries sequel and a 20-episode regular series. Prepare yourself for V, the podcast. Now, Forgotten TV has finally entered the 2010s. Follow Forgotten TV Media on Instagram. Link in the show notes found right on your podcast player. And did you know you can support Forgotten TV on Patreon or PayPal and get your own podcast feed? Additional content is found there, which includes Forgotten TV Supplemental. Over 20 podcasts in addition to the ones in the main feed, which feature full-length interviews with TV creators and supplementary information on show topics. Coming up on Forgotten TV Supplemental, the wild history of the U.S. film rating system that came out of my research into Sun Classic Pictures. 
Patreon supporters have already heard Grizzly Adams writer David O'Malley discuss Charles Sellier, a Grizzly Adams full episode guide, and those Grizzly Adams TV Guide articles. Won't you join us over on Patreon? Link found right in your podcast player. This episode was executive produced by Will Welton, Doc Pinko, and super supporter Joshua Driscoll. With producers Julio Coppa, K.L. Young, Trevor Pearson, Mark Hadley, and Ron. And of course, thanks to all who support at the $1 and $2 levels. Forgotten TV is not affiliated with or authorized by NBC, Sun Classic Pictures, Taft Broadcasting, Viacom, CBS DVD, Shop Factory, Timeless Media Group, or any production company or network involved in the making of any TV show or film mentioned in this podcast. Links to Amazon or affiliate, and as an Amazon associate, Forgotten TV earns royalties from qualifying purchases made. The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams is the copyright and property of Sun Classic Pictures, Paramount Global, and possibly additional rights holders. Other series mentioned are the property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips included are for the purposes of historical context, review, commentary, and criticism only, and are not intended to infringe. Additional music and sound effects used under license by Epidemic Sound. If you need music for your podcast or YouTube channel, check out Epidemic Sound, link in the show notes. This podcast is copyright 2023 Forgotten TV Media. The views and opinions expressed by guests and quoted sources are their own and may not reflect the opinion of Forgotten TV Media, its sponsors, or patrons. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. Information presented is based on a combination of first-hand personal accounts, period news media, books, and selected websites. While reasonable effort has been made to fact-check the information presented, Forgotten TV Media cannot guarantee the accuracy of every detail included and makes no representations or warranties for the content in this podcast and cannot be held liable for errors or omissions. And I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making many of those audio clips possible. Siegfried Wenninger, Entertainment Wow TV, Logic Smash, Groovy Graveyard, Black and White TV 1966, Absolute Westerns, Anthony Benwarn Great Ant 41, Flix House, Richard Wigan, The Museum of Classic Chicago Television, A Lurking Gru, Weird Lectures, Peter Thomas Official, Pulsing Cinema, Jesus Gospel Superstar, Surf Dog TV, Moshad 100, Rob at C 2009, Mondo Digital, Vincent Dawn, Movie and Video Game TV Spots, Schlockmeisters, Memory Museum, Sin Rob 1, Musical Treasures, Music Lover, No Copyright Music, Vindobona Austria, Vintage Bodybuilding, David Gideon, Christoph Zeszkowski, Misters on Videos, Jay Parr, Deft Mahatma, Let's Be Pandas, Jesse Coffey, Film Lover, Oscars, Toy Man Television, Minnie Adler, Night of the Comet, The Lost Songs, Maljardin, Cool Gems, Video Detective, Is Crazy for Horses, Christopher Gomez, Brad Carlton's Logo Archive, Retro Ontario, That's Entertainment, Best Movie Quote, Classical Music Copyright Free, 
Matthias Dax. And I'd like to thank the following people for their contributions. Thomas Feeney, David O'Malley, Sharon Miller, Dale Angel, Tom Tabak, Glenn Steiner, Robert J., Robert Beebe of Olympic Game Farm. And thanks to Todd and Julie Swindell, caretakers of the Grizzly Adams brand. A special acknowledgement to the work of Dick Robinson, Charles Sellier, David O'Malley, Dan Haggerty, Denver Pyle, Don Shanks, Tom Pace, Bob Summers, and all the animal trainers for creating the characters and world of Grizzly Adams. Additional research by Thomas Feeney and Robert J. of Television Obscurities. Sources of quotes and background information not given directly to Forgotten TV were obtained from the following sources. The articles. Charles E. Sellier Jr. and Son Classic Pictures. Journal of Popular Film and Television by Gary Edgerton, 1982. Staring into the Sun. A Loving Look Back at Sun Classic Pictures by Thomas Feeney. Sun Classic Pictures, How Movies Introduced America to Fake History by Sean Munger. Here Comes the Sun, Documentary Cinema's New Morning in America by Rob Nelson. Four Walling Exhibition, Regional Resistance to the Hollywood Film Industry, Cinema Journal by Frederick Wasser. Sun Goes Down in Flames, The Jamal Ark Hoax by Jim Lippard. Mormons, Aliens, and Dan Haggerty, The Mostly True Story of Sun Classic Pictures, Diabolique Magazine by Robert Skvarla. Halloween Movies, Halloween 5's Don Shank Speaks by Sean Decker. The Books, Immediate Seating, A Look at Movie Audiences by Bruce Austin. Never Kick a Bear in Your Bedroom Slippers by Dick Robinson. The Adventures of James Capen Adams, Mountaineer and Grizzly Bear Hunter of California by Theodore H. Hittel. The Legend of Grizzly Adams, California's Greatest Mountain Man by Richard Dillon. Whatever Happened to Orson Welles by Joseph McBride. Has Hollywood Lost Its Mind by Chris Hicks. The Encyclopedia of TV Pets by Ken Beck. Wilderness Trails and a Dream by Lloyd Beebe. Don Perry produced the music, My Journey Through the Golden Age of Rock and Roll by Don Perry. And the following periodicals, Variety, March 23, 1977 and May 12, 1982. People Magazine, January 16, 1978. TV Guide, June 11, 1977 and January 28, 1978. Broadcasting, June 7, 1976 and content from the following websites. Reeling Back, Video Detective, Chantrell Posters, grizzlyadams.com, Groovy History, New England Historical Society, Legends of America, History Net, JSTOR Daily, Apocalypse Later Film Reviews, The TV Ratings Guide, The AFI Catalog, Case Text, Justia U.S. Law, Slash Film, Motor Trend, TV Guide, Vantage Point Interviews, The Writers Guild of America Directory, The Cherokee Strip Museum, Payson Roundup, Deadline, BartTheBear.com, Discogs, NBC.com, and many newspaper articles archived at newspapers.com. Thank you for listening. 
Be sure and bookmark Forgotten.tv for all content and links to social media sites. I am your writer, producer, and host, Chris Cooling, and this has been Forgotten TV. Forgotten TV.